Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot Podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing, and I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. This week, I will have one of the most difficult conversations I've had with anyone on this podcast since the start. I've spoken to some amazing people, and hopefully if you've been following this podcast, you'll have heard the accounts given by many people involved in policing from all sorts of different roles over a long period of time. But this episode, we'll be dealing with something that can only be described as one of the darkest days in the history of British policing. So today... We're going to look at the suicide bombings in July 2005 and the failed suicide bombings two weeks later. So many of you will be very familiar with these incidents. But for those who aren't or maybe listening to this in another country, I'll just give you a quick recap in terms of setting the scene. So on the 7th of July 2005, there were four coordinated suicide attacks carried out by Islamist terrorists in London targeting commuters travelling on the city's public transportation system during the morning rush hour. Three terrorists detonated homemade bombs on London underground trains, and a fourth terrorist detonated another bomb on a bus in Tavistock Square. And in addition to the bombers, 52 people, innocent people, died on that day, and 700 were injured, many with life-changing injuries. So that triggered a massive counter-terrorism investigation into the individuals who had blown themselves up. And the big question for the police and the security service was, is this part of a wider conspiracy uh, or are these individuals acting alone? And then exactly two weeks later to the day, on the 21st of July 2005, four Islamist extremists attempted to blow themselves up again in London. There was a, uh, a partial detonation uh, at Shepherd's Bush, at Warren Street and the Oval stations in London. And there was another one on a London bus in Bethnal Green, uh, Hackney Road. A fifth bomber dumped his device without attempting to set it off and he obviously bottled it at the very last minute. Um, I can remember that day very, very clearly. Uh, as I'm sure many of you can as well. There was near pandemonium in London and uh, and everyone was on on full alert. Uh, So we've got a massive manhunt was set in train to locate the failed bombers uh, before they regrouped and potentially attempted another attack, which could obviously be successful second time round. And it was the following day, the 22nd of July, 
that a surveillance operation took place in South London in the vicinity of an address which had been linked to one of the failed bombers. And at the conclusion of that surveillance operation, an innocent man, Jean-Charles de Menezes, was shot dead on a tube station by Metropolitan Police Farms officers. The person I'm going to interview today is called Adrian. I'm not going to give any more details of his name. He's happy to be referred to as Adrian. And he was one of the two surveillance officers who were with Jean-Charles on the tube train at Stockwell when he was shot. I think I made this point very clear at the start of the interview with Adrian, but I just want to make it again, that every person in the UK, I think, was absolutely horrified by that incident. Every police officer that I've ever spoken to was, was horrified. And it caused um, so much heartache for the police service. It was just a terrible, terrible day for British policing. An innocent man had lost his life in such circumstances. And, and I don't know if any of the family or friends of Jean Charles will ever listen to this, but if, if they do, I just want to say this. I just want to say you have my and our profound sympathies for what happened. It shouldn't have happened. And uh, it's a terrible tragedy and I'm so sorry um, for your loss. But I feel as confident as I can, given the background that I've got in counterterrorism, that this incident fundamentally changed the way that these scenarios are managed. And the purpose of this is not in any way to glorify or to entertain. The purpose of this is to show the human consequences of such a dreadful incident so that people can learn from it. And I think it's really important to hear the voice of one of the people who was there on that day. So. Let's get into the interview. Absolutely fantastic to have you on the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Um, I'm really, really pleased to see you here, mate. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Very kind of you to have me on. Great. So um, just to make it really, really clear, I mean, I made this clear in my introduction, but I just want to, you know, um, you know, make it crystal clear that, you know, this subject is a super sensitive one. Um, it's had um, de desperate, a desperate impact, um, most importantly, on on uh, the family of the man who was killed. Um, uh, and, and he obviously lost his life himself. Um, and it's had a huge impact on uh, the police service and uh, the specifically, particularly the individuals who have who were involved in it. So I just want to sort of just double, triple, quadruple check with you that you're OK talking about this this evening. And that um, just to reassure you that at any time, um, you know, you feel uncomfortable at any of the things I'm asking you that that you can tell me to fuck off or or, or I'll just we'll just agree to edit anything out that you're uncomfortable with. You OK with all of that? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think it, you know, from my from my perspective, any time I've spoken about this, uh, whether, you know, in front of other law enforcement agencies, friends and family, um, and certainly with close colleagues of mine would agree that we have to remember, you know, this was an innocent man. And and as a result, we have to pay our respects to, to him and his extended family um, and everyone else, like you rightly say. But I think that is important that that, that is made clear. So thank you yeah. for that. That's okay, no worries. And and from a just to check again, from a legal point of view, 
Um, are you subject to any ongoing legal issues around this? Has that all been done and dusted now? Well, none that I'm aware of. Uh, yes, uh, I, I believe is the sensible answer. Um, hopefully it's all in the past now, okay, uh, which okay. obviously allows allows some speaking about it in more detail to, to take place. Okay, and, and just the final kind of ground rule, I suppose, really, is you know, <clears throat> we're not going to be discussing any sensitive intelligence uh, or tactics or tradecraft around national security operations. This is purely a um, description of, of what actually happened, your role and what happened and, and the impact, I suppose, that it had on not just you, but everyone you were working with at that time. So I just want to make that clear. So anyway, now that we've got that out of the way, um, uh, from a policing point of view, when did you actually join the police? I joined the police in uh, November of 1995. Right. OK. And uh, where, are you where are you are you from? Your, your accent suggests you're from the south of England, <clears throat> somewhere around that. Next yeah. Year. So I, I grew up in Hertfordshire, uh, went to school in Hertfordshire <clears throat> um, and then uh, ended up leaving school. Uh, parents were divorced roughly around the same time as I was leaving school. So um, I must admit, I did drop off on my studies at that time. Uh, I think I got really lazy with it mm. um, and ended up uh, at 16 thinking, you know, I just I just want to get out of school, to be honest. And uh, yeah, started looking for opportunities to, to get some cash on the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so being a police officer wasn't sort of a burning ambition that you'd had, you know, your, your kind of all your growing up years or anything like that. No, um, and I think, funny enough, listened to a few of your other podcasts. Some some others were in a similar sort of boat. I think my family were uh, historically more akin to the other side of the fence. <laughs> um, uh, but no, it had never been a burning desire of mine to join right. police. Uniform, yes, but not the police. Okay. So what age were you when you joined? Uh, I was 25. 25, 25. so I'd, quite, uh, quite a late joiner then, really. Yeah, I... Um, I, I ducked and dived a bit when I left school, went to building college, uh, did a YTS scheme oh, back yeah. then for my £27 a week or whatever it was, um, and just didn't really fit in anywhere. So I ended up at uh, 19, walking into an army careers office and right. signing up, didn't tell anyone, took the test, did quite well, and was offered a role in the army, which oh, I took. Right. All right. Okay. So, which uh, which uh, which bit of it were you uh, uh, sort of infantry? Yeah. Or? No, I joined the Royal Signals because I th I felt it was important for me to try and get some sort of trade or some skill. Uh -huh. um, I, I didn't dare want to face my mum, go home and tell her I joined the army and that I hadn't actually done it with a view to coming out of it the other end with something you know of, yeah, of significance. Yeah. So I did, and I was fortunate enough through my training to join a specialist unit. Um, and had a great six years traveling around the world, doing some fun things, some nice places, some not so nice places, uh, um, and, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Brilliant. So you got in just before it all went sort of pear-shaped, I suppose, and everybody started being posted out to, <coughs> as, uh, as, as, as so many army friends of mine describe it, horrible sandy places. Yeah, I managed to avoid the sand. I mean, uh, I think Cyprus was as close as I got to the sand, which is more beach orientated than anything nasty. Um, but I had a little stint in uh, the former Yugoslavia, 
across the water in Northern Ireland um, and some tours in the South Atlantic, which were you know, good fun. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it has its challenges, uh, yeah, yeah. personal life, home life. Um, but looking back, I had a really fantastic time and I think it set me up um, for moving on into the police. Yeah. Um, so which I did. And it was the Met you joined, obviously. Yeah, so I, I, I finished my army service in the August, uh, had a couple of months off in '95, and then joined straight into the Met. Right. Okay. And where, where, where was your, where were you posted <clears throat> first of all? Well, I was I was um, posted to Collindale Borough. Oh, bloody division. hell! So literally right beside the training, <coughs> the training, well, the training the, school. Yeah. So you know, obviously everyone sits there anticipating where they're going to get, and everyone's you know, really <laughs> wanting the West End and all these. Uh, great places and I got Collindale which was you know my almost my home ground um, yeah. but one of those grounds as are many <clears throat> that are a great learning place yeah. establishment because there's so much diversity in the work yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so for anybody and, who anybody who's listening who doesn't know where that is Hendon Police Trading College which is where you went and where I went and where we all went back in those days uh, you got off the tube station at Collindale tube station to to um you know when you when you arrived at, at Hendon so so you probably you, if you'd been looking out the window of where you were living in training school you you would have been able to see the patch you would have been then policing wouldn't you yeah lots of excuse me I'm gonna have to cough <coughs> lots of satellite stations and and bizarrely which is quite unusual I was posted to Bushy police station which is it was um it was very quiet something uh, I mean it odd because uh, my girlfriend at the time uh, was from Bushy so I ended up as one of a couple of officers there uh, working on a great team um, small team uh, it was almost like countryside it was like heartbeat yeah. uh, <laughs> but but you know it's um, it managed to get me my driving qualifications quickly yeah and I learned very quickly you know how to deal with stuff on your own um, without support, which, you know, is, we've gone full circle on that. Um, but a, a great uh, learning ground. So is that the old uh, Y? Is that the old Y district, was it? Uh, it was It was um, S, S division, S yeah. Oh, okay. I went from Bushy to Boreham Wood, um, which was, you know, chalk and cheese in comparison. Uh, and uh, he had a really good time with all the people there on all the different shifts. Yeah. And um, so let's fast forward, let's fast forward a little bit to when you ended up in um, my old department, Special Branch. So, so when did you join Special Branch? I joined Special Branch in the January of two thousand and five. Um, yeah, I, I uh, I'd been on a comment to Hearts as part of the boundary changes, and right. my introduction back into the Met was to go direct to uh, Central TSG. Right. Territorial support group. And from there, obviously, guys and girls go one of a couple of different ways, promotion, firearms um, or surveillance type roles. Right. Uh, and I, I wanted to do the surveillance role because it was the the closest to the covert work I'd done in the military. Right. Um, and that's, you know, I'd, I'd done my borough policing, my community policing. Yeah. But I wanted to get back into the sneaky beaky stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was that was my passion. Um, I loved I loved the uniform stuff. Really good fun. But 
I was never, you know, my, my mates will laugh at this. I was never really much of a thief taker, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, unless it was a bank holiday. But mm-hmm. um, having said that, you know, I, I just wanted to get back into something a little bit more me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I applied to join SB. Um, and fortunately for me, there was a big recruitment drive direct to the surveillance teams. Oh, rather really? than like many of the yeah, branch yeah. officers that had, had to do their stints on all the different posts and and yeah, you know yeah oh gosh um, well that was very different because I joined probably yeah you know more than ten years before that and um, oh yeah you'd have had to have probably <clears throat> typically you would have you would have done your penance probably for maybe a year eighteen months out at one of the ports Heathrow yeah. or whatever then come in and done one of the squads and then maybe after four or five years you might have had a crack at surveillance. Um, so yeah, so obviously by the time I had left, so I left Special Branch in 2002, <clears throat> so and you arrived in 2005, so clearly quite a lot had changed even in that time. But I mean, it, it did go on to more significant change, but yeah, certainly um, I would class it as fast tracking in rather than, you know, uh, the, the really tough challenging process that the old guards had had to go through. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But my, you know, I had Special Branch links from my military days, um, and it, it was a nice natural progression for me to yeah, go yeah. that way. No, definitely. I think, um, you know, you were, you were clearly a square peg in a square hole there, given what you'd been doing previously. Um, so had you done your surveillance training before you went to Special Branch or did you do that on yeah. arrival? Yeah, so I went, I, I'd, I'd picked those skills up, uh, surveillance, firearms, um, the driving at the TSG. So I went in as a, a fully qualified but fairly... Yeah. wet behind the ears yeah. officer um in terms of surveillance yeah, yeah you know yeah. i hadn't i hadn't done a lot of surveillance right but uh you know the, the recruitment drive was um you know they were looking to because of the threat that had now you know landed in the uk the the al-qaeda threat the surveillance teams needed to be increased yeah uh, and the team i joined was put together for that purpose but it was a mix of old and new so Officers were drafted in from other surveillance teams within mm. Special Branch. There yeah. were officers joining from Flying Squad, other yeah. specialist units that had been doing surveillance for some time. Yeah. There were a couple that, like myself, uh, were, were new to the game of surveillance uh, in yeah. terms of policing surveillance. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was it was it was a a real blend of diverse backgrounds coming into the team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's really probably really healthy. Um, I, I mean, I know that um, I sound like a right old fart when I say this, but, you know, I, I know I'm sure there was probably quite a few of the old guard at that time who would have been very unhappy about that idea of people coming in and going straight onto surveillance teams. But the reality is, as you say, uh, the threat level in the UK had was about as high as it could possibly be. Um, and um, there was a, a, an urgent need to get people through the door, wasn't there? There was. In the main, I think the majority of the people on the surveillance side embraced the change and they were they were happy with it. Um, of course, yeah, there were people that had their noses put out of joint because, you know, you had to earn your your um, your, your salmon cords and your tweed jacket almost yeah. to be part of that network. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, if ever there was a unit that could adjust um, to, you know, current requirements it was it was that unit yeah 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 so what was your first um sort of uh reflections on your your first experiences of coming on to uh special bunch surveillance team and kind of actually going out and doing doing live jobs did you 
did you um enjoy that yeah i mean it's 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 different work isn't it it's um you know we've got different surveillance teams within the met that do lots of different roles um and at that time uh, terrorism was the the main focus of the sb teams um it was for, for me personally and my background i felt like i'd made uh, the big league for want of a better description in terms of you know this is what you strive to be involved in this kind of work mm. um I, I like working against <clears throat> other type of criminality um but everyone and anyone who does that will know there are differences between the two and you either it's like marmite you either love one and hate the other yeah. um whichever way you you see that um mm. but me personally i i like the way that ct surveillance you know suited me yeah uh, my style of doing the work yeah. um, but it felt it, it was a rude awakening don't get me wrong because um there's a lot at stake yeah yeah you know oh, yeah, there, there's so. uh there's there's uh, you know huge ramifications for yeah, yeah, for, yeah. for failure as, as we yeah. unfortunately yeah. know yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but what a great work stream to be involved in you know yeah. make a difference you can't ask for any more yeah, well, my previous podcast guest, Tom, um, you know, we were reminiscing because Tom and I s- served together um, in Special Branch for many years and we were both on <coughs> both on a Special Branch surveillance team, um, both surveillance photographers. Um, so so many of the people who you, um, I know I, I know many of the people who you were working with at the time because um, I would have been working with them myself probably not that long before. Um, so yeah, it was it was nice to reminisce about about all that stuff um but yeah you're absolutely right um uh, what uh, post 9-11 the the mindset needed to change very very quickly didn't it and um you know the realization that we were dealing with uh people who had no hesitation about killing people or and killing themselves in the process so uh very different to running around after ira terrorists yeah, and there's, um, firstly, I'm assuming that was you that probably left a coffee cup and the McDonald's wrappers then in the back of the, the vans. But, um, but yeah, quite quite different in terms of, you know, working against European subjects, uh, Irish subjects, mm-hmm. um, totally different skill set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, as challenging, some would argue maybe not as much, um, but, you know, coming in from my position, it was a real challenge, you know, yeah. in terms of and when you look at the um, the the footprint of the team you're working in and the makeup and the, the look, the image compared to now the areas where we're having to go and work yeah. and the subjects you're working against, some real challenges yeah, yeah, to yeah. try and achieve. Yeah, no, I know exactly what it means. So certainly my my memories of um, my, my sort of basic observations about the differences between um, Irish terrorists and Islamic fundamentalist extremists is that in generally this is this is a generalization but generally speaking the Irish terrorists tradecraft was a lot better um, they they had been trained um, in all sorts of um, ways of trying to uh, identify law enforcement and security um, uh, but the Islamists were probably less professional from that point of view but but way way more dangerous um so yeah i would completely agree with that um and and challenging in so many other ways like you know just like i've said to to be able to maintain 
the operations in the areas you know you're working so, so mm. challenging challenging so so let's 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 go forward then to um july <coughs> 2005 so so really interesting given what you just said that you had really only landed on the team um a matter of months really hadn't you yeah and this is you know something that's you know i i always mention it when i talk about it but you know we we were fresh out the packet you know we were as in myself and a couple of others were very new to this game um and you know heavily reliant on the more experienced officers whatever their backgrounds were in surveillance uh so when it when it came along you know those few months later it was you know quite an amazing turn of events you know the whole purpose of joining the branch was for that type of work and you know there it is unfolding in front of your very eyes and I was um I'd been released back on attachment to um well I was I was helping out protection team the SB protection team Mm -hmm. um and I was up at the G8 summit in Glen Eagles uh when you know clearly something was you know afoot in London so there was a uh, come back to town and you know we need you back on the team's uh, moment and lo and behold you know 7-7 seven, seven happens and uh, before very long you know we have another wave of attacks going on so it was um, a very strange period yeah. having been so new to the team yeah yeah yeah, yeah. what made so, it what so made it even more impactful was <laughs> I, I was married the week before bloody and, hell and uh you know, if ever if ever there was a moment to decide to go on honeymoon straight away, it was, <laughs> that was the moment. But I didn't, and um, you know, a few days later, you know, involved in you know an, an incident of this nature was such yeah. a steep learning curve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, um, describe to me what people like you and people like you on the surveillance team were feeling after seven seven when you had seen the consequences of a mass casualty multi suspect suicide attack that killed 52 people and you knew that you would very soon be going out and putting yourself in a position where you were getting very very close to people who are capable of doing something like that what did that feel like after 7-7 to me, it it felt like that's what I was after. That was that was the goal, you know, the the career desire to follow that path. You know, what I'm going to say will will be funny to those in the know, I'm sure. But you know, within the different surveillance teams, um, as we've discussed, CT surveillance is often viewed in a particular light, uh, and you know, certainly prior to anything happening in the UK in terms of um, suicide bombers, shall we say? Uh, I think some of the CT work can be viewed as boring against AQ subjects when you're just babysitting them to from A to B, mm. B back to A, and that goes on and on and on. Uh, yeah. And some of the other surveillance officers around around the country would would laugh because they know what I'm talking about. It's it's a dip, different atmosphere sat on the plot doing that kind of work. So I think when it first started to come to light that actually these people are going to get involved in you know what we've hoped they would never do on our shores it was very much a case of right for those 
I'm speaking for myself here. For those few months, it was very mellow, a nice introduction, challenging, yes. But it felt that as soon as things started to ramp up, it was time for everyone to up their game. It yeah. wasn't sitting there watching a box set of DVDs. Mm. It was, you know, we, we need to switch on here because these people aren't, you know, they're not messing about. This is serious work. Yeah. Um, for me personally, you know, when I, when I joined, it's the kind of work I'd hope to be involved in, to be up close and personal with someone yeah, yeah. who's going to be involved in that. Yeah. Um, the difference is you don't expect it to be at the time they're going to be doing that. It's going to be yeah, the yeah, work yeah. around the yeah. lead up to it. And then there's yeah. obviously going to be some line in the sand. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for me personally, it was, it was the kind of work I, I was excited by yeah. as in, you know, it's what I wanted to be doing. Although, and nervous excitement i'll be foolish yeah, yeah. to say otherwise because you know potentially standing next to people that are willing to commit murder mass murder yeah. um it's not something to be treated lightly yeah yeah i know exactly what you mean because it's it's very strange it's a strange surreal feeling isn't it when when you've been to a briefing you've been given the intelligence you understand the nature of the individuals that you're um being tasked with um you know, a gathering intelligence on, and um, uh, and then later on that day, or maybe the next day, you find yourself sat beside them. <laughs> yeah, in a, quite in surreal. A, in a in a cafe or something, and it's just a weird feeling, isn't it? Very strange. And even the aftermath of that, you know, when you're driving home or you're at home having, a, you know, a, a beer if that's your thing, or a cup of tea, you're thinking, "Crikey, was I really doing that today?" Yeah. yeah. You know, people don't know, you know half of what goes on and you know there you are sitting with someone who is thinking ill thoughts about what they would like to do to other people it's uh, bizarre yeah yeah it's very it's a very strange thing so so anyway um let's let's get into um <clears throat> july the 22nd then um and i think it's probably best that you you tell the story um in your words in terms of you know what 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 sort of your role in that and and then i'll let you i'll let you talk but i might chip in with the odd little question if i need to clarify something or whatever so is that okay yeah of course so um i mean the day before obviously were, were the failed attacks I'll, I'll say you know that that's where uh devices were attempted to be set off and as a result you know that <laughs> Quite sounds old, doesn't it? The pager, the pager was buzzing away, yeah. uh, asking for availability, who's available to work. And before long, we're getting called in in the early hours of the 22nd. Um, and some slight confusion, as, as with all these things, where are we going to brief? You know, what, what's happening? You know, there's only so much information you can get on the way in on a, on a call out like that. Yeah. Um, I was asked to go and collect firearms. Uh, on the way in because it was my natural route to the base and then we all mustered gathered at the surveillance headquarters um before so just, just, just to clarify just on the firearms issue just for <clears> those who are listening who don't maybe understand so yes so special branch surveillance officers are, are armed um for not a, not every operation is it it's only certain operations where there is a potential threat to life or firearms threat but those firearms are issued for self defense aren't they yeah protection of self protection of the public in yeah. in terms of spontaneous incidents um uh, a handgun uh, a pistol 
that yeah. would be your your method of carriage rather than a long barreled weapon um, with an amount of rounds. Uh, but like you say, more for personal protection than anything else um, okay. and trained accordingly to that level. OK, brilliant. So just want to just important to sort of make the distinction between an armed surveillance officer and a tactical firearms um, officer SO19 type um, resource because it's a very different job, isn't it? Yes, and, and the, the carriage would be covert, obviously, that's, that's by right. a range of methods, but secreted within the person. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sorry, so, yeah, we, we, um, we then made our way to Scotland Yard, old Scotland Yard as, as it was then, uh, and were briefed on the ongoing operation that had taken place overnight. Um, and uh, it was it was pretty obvious from that point that there was a lot of confusion going on. Um, people weren't really 100% sure what the task was going to be, whether it was going to be, let's go out and try and find these people and then put them under surveillance, or is it uh, an, an intervention operation mm -hmm. from the get-go? Um, and, and, you know, I, I think there was a lot of... Uh, it's, it sounds harsh, but some some headless chickens in so much that you know there weren't really clear directions at that point as to what mm. you know we're in but what do you want us to do yeah and I, I, I it's not a criticism but because i think it was so new to people to yeah. be in a position where we're now trying to yeah locate people who have tried to blow themselves and others up on on the underground system yeah. and public yeah. transport and that was you know something completely new even after seven seven this is now a manhunt yeah. uh, to try and locate these people. And yeah. it brings on a whole range of pains in terms of, you know, senior leadership, the decision-making process around, well, what are we going to do if we do locate them? Do they still have the capability? Do they not? You know, mm -hmm. it, it must have been absolutely mind-boggling, yeah. such a challenge for the, for the hierarchy. Um, so ultimately, um, there were other teams called in and we were tasked to go and help one of our um, sister teams on the surveillance side of SB uh, to go and um, deploy to a, an, a location near an address in South London where it had been established that there were some uh, links to the failed bombers. Right. Okay. So, so, um, so it, it, it sort of feels from how you've described it. And I know that there was there was two massive public inquiries into all of this. And, you know, anyone, anyone, anyone out there, and I'm, I'll probably put a link in the in the uh, podcast description to the Stockwell one and Stockwell two reports, which are both, you know, available online. There was many, many months and years of 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 legal reviews into all of this. So, um, you know, the, I don't think it's particularly necessary for the purposes of this to go into all of the minute by minute thinking and decision making by senior managers or anything like that, because that's that's all been documented. I'm, I'm so let's talk about. I, th I think it would really, it, it would probably confuse the issue anyway. You know, any, any yeah. time I've spoken about this as part of a presentation that that, that I am involved in delivering, um, you know, it's it's all taken from open source 
information that was yeah. available after the coroner's. And I actually worked in partnership with the coroner's office to have the material access with, with a colleague so that we could deliver the most accurate representation of what took place. Yeah. Um, because it's very difficult to speak for others yeah. uh, around what they decided to do and what, what they did or didn't do. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've always tried to stay away from that, unless, of course, that was their evidence and they've spoken about that themselves and they're happy that that's on record. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, to be honest, we would be here for hours and hours yeah, if yeah, we went yeah. into the minute detail of, of yeah. everything that happened. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I will try not to go into it. Yeah, too no, much. that's that's okay. Um, um, so, okay, so you get deployed to the uh, vicinity of an address in South London. So what, what happens then? Yeah, so, um, you know, we're, we're um, the support team to another team already deployed. Uh, and, you know, I, part of part of coming on here today is obviously there, there are a lot of misnomers around this incident that have been reported over the years. Um, and when, when you do go into the detail, which I know we're not going to go into massively today, um, you can see where those mistakes from a reporting purpose have been made. Um, and, you know, as we've discussed, we're not going to go into the tactical application of the surveillance operation but mm -hmm. um we were we were tasked to support the other team uh, and unfortunate things happen mm. from the very commencement of the operation mm -hmm. which you know on any given day can happen yeah. um you strive to negate them from happening but sometimes things yeah. do go wrong and unfortunately yeah. on this operation not just at the start but during afterwards things went wrong um so you know the plan is the plan from the top down is that anyone coming out of a particular address was to be followed away from the location and when it was safe to do so they were going to be stopped uh, and if they were a suspect or a subject of the previous day they would be arrested mm -hmm. by a range of means or methods uh, if they weren't, they were to be stopped and we would gain information about the address where it was believed the failed suicide bombers had links to. So that was the overall aim of the operation, yep. um, which is sound. Yep. Um, a lot seems, of that is... Seems perfectly reasonable, yeah. Well, you have to also take into account the Madrid bombings that had happened uh, previously, um, where it was a different type of bombing, but... The police raided an address where they believed the, the subjects were held up, the terrorist cell was held up, and they detonated a device and blew the premises up, causing mass damage. Uh, a police officer was killed. So in terms of the decision-making process, you know, one of the factors was, is it sensible or safe to enter into a potential bomb factory or a location where there are failed suicide bombers it's probably not a great idea. When you look at the 7-7 bomb factory, yeah. um, you know, these are these are a volatile, hostile place. Mm. So do you want to be sending staff in there? Probably not. No. So let's get them out on the street, either on foot or in vehicles, and, and deal with them in a different way. And that was the plan. And you, and you, you have to say that this is, that's a sensible plan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we were a support team to, to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, at a particular time, a mail came out of an address mm. uh, and the surveillance operation commenced. Right. Okay. So 
given that you are the support team, so um, just to clarify uh, what that what that meant. I mean, I know what it means, but just for people who are listening who, who might not, um, you've got the team, the operational team that has primacy, I suppose, in terms of um, uh, having, as we would say in surveillance, the eye. So uh, they've got control of the subject. Um, and then um, your team will presumably, so is there as a, so stop me if I'm barking up the wrong tree here. Your team is there as a contingency to deal with a scenario that would be too much for a single surveillance team to deal with. Is that about right? Yeah, I think I think um, if you think of it as a, an inner ring and an outer ring of staff on two different teams looking at an address, you know, you could argue it both ways. You could say it's a sensible option. If someone comes out of that address that is of interest, the team that are held looking at that address will follow that person away. The other team would then have to backfill and take over the address in case other people come out or it's the wrong person or he goes back. Um, the other option would be to have a team looking at that address, but to keep things as covert as possible, they would in turn feed anyone of significance through them mm. to the team that's waiting a bit further out. So they're both viable options. Um, unfortunately, one of the you know, there, there are things we're probably going to talk about, like I've said, that, that do go wrong on surveillance. Um, on this particular day, you know, there is a clear um, upward curve of errors that took place, mm. um, which snowballed and they compounded each other and ultimately led to the death of an innocent man, unfortunately. Um you know, but on on any other day of surveillance, these things can happen and you roll with it and yeah. it doesn't become an issue. But because of, you know, the way this day played out, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, it ended the way it did. But um, there was a, a, a lot of confusion about that a method that I've yeah. just discussed. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. who would do what? Would, would they or would we? And I think there was a real communication issue um, yeah. between the teams and the uh, deployment. You know, who was going to do what? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and it became very think, messy when someone I think, did come I out. think that that kind of whilst the consequences in this scenario were catastrophic, that is a scenario that I have seen so many times in policing, not just in surveillance, but in almost every other scenario. I, I don't think, you know, when does anything ever work exactly how you plan or hope it will be it's well like this is it and you know i i my, my current roles or my previous roles have been heavily focused on contingency planning mm. and you know for, for risk and things not going right and having to adapt and change um and you know my passion for that is because of this day because i think you know with hindsight which you know is everyone knows that's that's so easy you know things could have been done differently and you it's, it's simple things like compounding the confusion around who's doing which role with adding on the top the fact that my particular surveillance team didn't know it was a block of flats right. because we hadn't gone into the location to conduct our own reconnaissance. Mm -hmm. We were relying on others to let us know it was a particular address. Unfortunately, because things happen so quickly from our arrival onto the 
onto the location, we weren't aware that it was a block of flats. Now, you know, I'm talking about the snowball effect. Our mindset after our briefing is that we are going to support a team who are looking at an address, which has direct links from evidence that's been seized overnight for a suspect who tried to blow himself up. The truth of the matter is his address is one within a block of flats. So therefore that significantly changes the dynamic because in my, in my mindset and many others on my team, anyone who's put up as coming out of the address has come from the address, not potentially yeah. coming out if communal it's a, door. if it's a two if it's a two up two line and a terror you know, a, ter- a row of terrorist sizes it's a piece of piss isn't it oh um, it's you know it, clearly but, yeah. in that scenario it's either the subject an associate or someone who knows what's going on exactly whereas in this case the reality was you know we had no idea that this guy was from a totally different address mm. and it, it, it clearly changes your mindset from the off from the get-go because you yeah. know from the very moment this person is put out in my mindset, I'm thinking, well, he's come out of the address, the, the address that we're looking at. Yeah, so therefore yeah. there's going to be something yeah. there. And it's probably useful just to sort of pause there to talk about the difference between a pre-planned intelligence led operation versus a manhunt. So a manhunt is, is super dynamic. You've got massive gaps in terms of your information and intelligence uh, there's generally a significant threat around the individuals because they've already done something that they need to be caught and detained for. So um, whereas in an intelligence led operation, very often you've got a bit more time, a bit more time to do a lot of digging and to understand, um, you know, the dynamics or the, you know, the, 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 the setup of a particular address, every single person who lives there, uh, at, you know, obtain sort of images of the occupants of a multi-occupancy address, all of that kind of stuff. But in this scenario, you just don't have time, do you? Yeah, no, it was it was very much a case, you know, on the call out and the briefing, get out there and, you know, we'll update you as much as we can when we have it. Um, unfortunately, it did transpire, you know, many years down the line and, and through further investigation, some of the information that we would have liked prior to deployment was available at the time but it, it wasn't passed on to us. And that was another element of the snowball effect, working off of an image that was a mm. photocopy of a grainy image. Yeah. Um, when, you know, as a photog, you'll, you'll understand this, you know, how frustrating it is when you, there are other images that have been taken and in police possession yeah. that weren't used as part of the briefing. And unfortunately, you know, that was one of the key failings on mm. this particular operation that they weren't used and weren't shared um because again it would have made a massive difference like knowing the address was a, a communal block of flats uh if we had a different um image to work from that was in police possession like i said if the communications were working mm. better right. um so you know it, it's it's an old adage about you know, you know the, the lift off you know the the start of the surveillance if it's not good Mm. The follow is not going to be good. And, and, and this was the case, really. It was very much a yeah. um, a poor start. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can uh, remember. But you, you are I right can... what you say. You know, in terms of the the type of operation it was, a manhunt, it was all about dealing with this as expediently as possible rather than it dragging out. We're not going to follow these people for days, weeks, months. This is yeah. going to be, let's find yeah. them, locate them, yeah. arrest them. Yeah. Um, well, and as a result, uh, 
that initial identification is, ever, is critical, isn't it? And without, again, going into details, I can remember one particular job I was involved, a surveillance job I was involved in many years ago, where um, the, the, the identification of the subject was flawed. <clears throat> the initial identification of the subject was flawed, and we ended up following a complete red herring around for about two fucking days. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, I, and I, along it, with many surveillance it, colleagues, will have will have been exactly in that position where... You know, the, the the identification, which, you know, this operation evolves around, um, is, is a challenge. You know, if I, this this incident has been discussed at length so many times, you know, I can't talk about it unless it's four hours long in terms of my delivery of it. We'll yeah. talk about it for longer tonight. The surveillance follow was 34 minutes long. Mm. Now, in terms of identification on, on most other surveillance tasks, to ID someone from a, you know, a starting point, never seen them, no work in photography. Um, that's probably a bit of a challenge to get that done in the first half hour of an operation. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And yeah. A, AQ subjects are, are, are very much a challenge in that respect. Yeah. Because um, the profile of, you know, the makeup, the look, the clothing, it is a real challenge to identify specifics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you add in, the ramifications of identifying someone involved yeah, yeah. in this type of yeah, yeah, yeah. incident yeah yeah it's a huge yeah. ask yeah but we'll come well, on to the idea i'm well, sure later on. just just to follow just again this is just to give people a flavor of how difficult and challenging it is so if i think back on that job i described where we basically followed a complete no a complete red herring around for about two days all over the bloody north of england or somewhere like that i can't remember where it was but <laughs> but um he was doing so many things under surveillance that looked so unbelievably suspicious that we were convinced that he was, uh, we were thinking this bloke, he's a real wrong and a real wrong and, but actually it was just that, is it, con I'm probably, I'm talking probably bollocks here. Is it confirmation bias? It's you basically see something and because you want to see what you're looking at, you end up believing it, you know? And um, yes, I don't know. I'm, I think sure you're that, right. I'm, sure, I'm sure there's a psychological term for that, but but we when we were told it's not the right person, we were we just couldn't believe it, could not believe it. We're like, no, 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 it's definitely him because if he did this and he did that and blah 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 blah. It's like, no, no, trust me, this is not the right person. Get in your car, back to London. I think you're right, and I think as humans, there are things you do. Uh, you know, people listening to this will. will probably look at themselves you know things that people do on a day-to-day -day basis um that you know inference can draw you to a different conclusion you know depending on what you know if, if this is our job to follow people and assess you know what their demeanor is and their body language you know, normal human beings will do certain things by nature uh, and it's um it, it's unfortunately easy mistaken but that's where we like to have corroboration by other means and you know yeah 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 use other other intelligence mechanisms to establish whether this is the right person but yeah, yeah. unfortunately the the start of the day for this operation you know i i'll be quite brutal here and i you know i could back it up if i was ever challenged on it but the the, the briefing was poor mm. but i understand it because of the urgency to get us out on the ground and then in time, we may get some more drip fed out to us. That yeah. didn't happen yeah. uh, because of the speed of which things changed. But, um, you know, and, and I think 
as teams on the ground. I think I think we were we were poor to start with as well because we you know we didn't get our asses in gear. Uh, you know, I remember faffing around trying to get out and just you know my car broke down on the way, so I had to jump in with the team leader and you know just poor poor admin. Yeah. Yeah, um, but but you're saying that to be honest, mate. That stuff happens, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, no, because you're right. It happens, and uh, anyway, so anyway, um, subject comes out of the address, and take it from there. Then, yeah. So so um, to be clear, then the team that was holding the address, um, they identify a male who comes out of the address uh, and walks past their observation van. Again, this is all well documented. Some issues around the observation van where uh, the member of staff inside wasn't sure, uh, discounted him, then thought he was worth having a look at. So there was a little bit of a lag and a time delay. And the team that were holding it, who were going to go with anyone coming out, were a little bit behind in terms of getting the first surveillance foot officer out mm-hmm. uh, and, and following. Um, no fault, just the, the, the poor communication issue. Um so as, as the outer team, um, our team leader put up that, you know, we, we'll try and help the team out and we'll see if we can have a look. You know, it's, um, it's fluid, it's flexible. Yeah. Uh, let's leave that team where they are because, you know, they're sterile and they're covert mm-hmm. and we'll pick up the follow if we see him and we'll yeah. go from it from there. Um, so, you know, uh, working on different comms channels, which obviously is another error, mm-hmm. but, you know, so yeah. be it. That's the way it was back then. Um, but I remember feeling, um, wow, like I've said before, this person has come from the address that we've been briefed on. Uh, so, you know, this is this is one of our players here you know, from, from the start. Um, but now let's look at identifying him properly and then seeing what the control room want us to do with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the surveillance begins. Um, so where are you I, at this time? Are you, so out, I'm in, are you out in foot or are you in the vehicle? No, I'm in, I'm in with the team leader uh, at the moment and I've, I've picked up the log. Um, new boys privileges and all that mm-hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm going to scribe um, and uh, we we drive past the subject that's been put up uh, have a look and as far as I'm concerned that's the description that's been put up quite happy that this is now the guy that we're seeing on foot that's come out of the address you know mistakenly uh, if you will um, so we're we're relaying that information and the team leader puts out a description to the rest of the team uh, and officers start to deploy and, and look to get control of the person that's come out of the address. Um, and very quickly, he makes his way through uh, some side streets and is out onto one of the main roads and going towards a bus stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, again, a question that's often asked, you know, were the buses allowed to be running because the day before there'd been a, a failed attack on a bus? So therefore, did it make sense to have the buses running in the locality? Um, and equally, it was the same trade craft from 7-7 where the bus was attacked, mm-hmm. as we all know. Yeah. Um, but the buses hadn't been stopped. Uh, the, the public transport system was still open and, and running. Um, but because we had only just arrived on the seen to plot and set up our surveillance positions nobody at that time was at the bus stop so the bus come along uh, the male jumped on the bus uh, and before we know it we're now chasing a double-decker bus to try and gain control of this person who you know 
may or may not be a failed suicide bomber. Yeah. So you can imagine the, the yeah. it's not panic. It's yeah. no, it, I can that imagine. urgency, urgency yeah, yeah, yeah. of trying to get hold of someone. Um, you know, oddly, um, in, in crude terms, he's potentially on target already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, yeah. yeah. You know, wh- whatever his mindset is as a potential failed suicide bomber, um, we don't know if he's looking to flee, you know, flight, escape, whether he's gone back and got another device and is now going back out to try and do what he couldn't achieve yesterday. Um, mm-hmm. Is he going to meet someone? Is he not a suicide bomber, but is he going to meet someone because they're held up somewhere? And all these things are going through your head in quick time. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. There's um, 101, 101 oh, scenarios. There's so there. many scenarios. And this is where, you know, how do you contingency plan for that as, as a senior leader in a control room and also on the ground? How does a team leader, you know, work out what's best to do for that? So all yeah. we can do, in you know, in, in brutal honesty is try and follow this person. Yep. You know, that's that's the skill mm-hmm. to surveillance to be able to um, observe, record and report. It's not mm-hmm. more, much more complex than that. Um, at, this, at this time, are you still with the team leader who presumably is going to be in direct control con- contact with the con- with the command centre control room who will yeah. be giving sort of more, ta- not tactical on the ground instructions, but more sort of high level um, more more live plan. reporting, yeah. yeah. And it, it's um, you know, as as he was walking towards the bus stop, I actually jumped out, deployed on foot, and walked in the opposite direction to try and get a good look at the person to see any facial kind of features. Um, but other than what I'd already been put up over the radio as a description, I couldn't add anything. And and the biggest part for me was I, I looked at him, um, knowing the image I'd seen on the briefing, and was drew an absolute blank thinking there's no way I can say yes or no at this point. Mm. Um, and when I jumped back in the car with the team leader, I looked at the photo again, cause we had a copy of it, you know, this one grainy image that we were given. And I, I, I stared at it thinking, I have no idea if that's the person I just walked past. It could mm. be because there are, there are some things that are quite similar. Yeah. Um, and, you know, very frustrating because, you know, as I've said, there were better images that were available that, yeah, yeah, yeah in my personal opinion, would have very quickly enabled us to establish whether it was or wasn't the person that came from the address. Okay. Um, unfortunately. So, so, so he's on the bus then? Yeah. Um, and uh, where does he where does he go to? Well, he, the bus was on a, on a route uh, to via Brixton. And um, I remember one of the stops it pulled in at was a short distance away, further south, uh, with Brixton Underground Station ahead up on the right um, and by this stage a colleague had boarded the bus and, and had him under full control um, just as a, a side issue because it will come apparent later you know why I'm talking about it now but the surveillance officer that stepped onto the bus and had the man under control and observations um, was almost dressed identically as the person that we were following Oh, in terms of uh, double denim, jacket and trousers, T-shirt, uh, had olive skin and was carrying a rucksack. And when I look back over and when I talk about it in other forums, mm. I explain the description that was put up of the man who came out of the address. And then I show people the image of the surveillance officer yeah. and they are almost identical. 
Oh my God. Uh, pure chance, but later on that becomes a massive issue. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure we'll come back to that. But the okay. bus ends up travelling towards Brixton, uh, and the male that we're surveilling steps off the bus and he starts to make his way towards Brixton Underground Station. And at, at that point, you know, you're thinking, okay, this is this is a challenge because we've got one public transport system into a densely populated area and is now going to travel on the underground. And, and you know as well as I do the problems and that can cause. So for anyone listening, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the issues of underground travel at that time were you know you're going to lose communications to the control room and the supervisors above ground. Yeah. You increase your risk of loss of the person mm. you're following because of the depth of crowd yeah, yeah, yeah. you run the risk of compromise because you will have yeah, to end yeah. up going closer yeah, um yeah. and it, it's just a problematic area you know working alone potentially underground you've then got to find out where the person is going and send the other assets to that location it's all very messy to yeah, be frank yeah, yeah. um so, so obviously, were, were you getting thought, were you getting any steer from a sort of command point of view at this point to say this is what we want you to do well because i was in the team leader's car it was um you know i can i can speak about that in so much that um no there, there was no direction um we had reported the team leader reported over the phone the description of the person that had come out to the control room over the telephone so they were aware and at this point in the control room, an officer was listening to our surveillance commentary and was typing that contemporaneously on a, on a computer mm -hmm. um, to ensure that there was a, a live record of what was taking place. And therefore, as a result, was then feeding that to the leadership within the control room. Um, and I remember, you know, being asked the question, you know, why are you still following this person, uh, even at that early stage? And the reply was simply, well, we're trying to identify if this is one of our subjects. Um, mm. uh, but no no direction in terms of, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to deploy this asset. Um, unbeknown to us, firearms officers had also been called in at the early hours mm. and briefed elsewhere and had a, a full thorough briefing from uh, anti-terrorist branch, SO13 mm. officers, Mm. Um, and we had no we had no clue that they were briefed and were in fact on the plot that we were working on really? um, because again a, a failure on on our behalf yeah, as yeah, in yeah. as an organization that we hadn't briefed together yeah. and was robustly criticized you know in, in all the inquiries yeah 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 um and for logistical reasons and i think it's important to, it's important to point out, and I'll probably do a little bit after our interview, um, sort of, you know, um, just to sort of wrap up at the end of the podcast, just, <clears throat> just, just me, you know, to to explain, how, you know, how things change as a result of this. And there was massive, massive changes to the way these sort of operations were run, and and probably the single biggest difference was a, around the way that senior commanders. CT commanders, counterterrorism commanders were trained uh, to manage this type of scenario. So I think it's fair to say that what you're describing is not, is definitely not 
the way things are done today? No, and I've been fortunate enough to to deliver on some of those training courses for the for the senior leadership based on experiences from from this incident. And and I completely concur. You know, we we have moved on significantly. You can't compare now to then, mm. um, but we have to remember that sometimes we corporately we we forget. Yeah. So we have to keep, re, you know, revisiting certain yeah, yeah. things. You know, our, our corporate memory can be sometimes a little bit short-lived. Um, so it's good to go over this stuff for the for the hierarchy. But, you know, yeah, there was, there, you know, unbeknown to us, you know, the bus actually travelled past the forward holding point for the firearms teams. Right. So in terms of the plan around let's take someone away from the address and do an intervention at an early stage for one of those reasons there was a missed opportunity um, to do that. And I I think that was just purely because of um, no malice, but just confusion about, you know, are surveillance following someone? Yes, they are. Who is it? Trying to find out. Um, And, you know, moments pass very quickly. Like I've said, the the 34-minute surveillance follow, you know, it doesn't allow time for that. Can we just freeze frame? Yeah. Can we we pause like you would in... TV documentaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just doesn't work. Like, can we get a phone tap? You know, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't I know. Work. Yeah, I know. It's like you know, if it was a Hollywood film, you'd, you'd have some infrared kind of camera which would have, you know, f- f- X-rayed his identity documents inside his pocket or something like that. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely even, him. Or even know. a DNA retrieval from anything you discarded would never have returned a result no, in no. the time frames that we're looking at. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he heads off to Brixton. Unfortunately, you know, as he got to Brixton, he was unable to go into the underground system because the shutters had been closed. Um, at which point he turns and ran back to the same bus that he had just stepped off of. Yeah, yeah. Now, we said about inference earlier, you know, we're reporting what we're seeing and that's our job to do that. Yeah. But... I, I completely understand why others elsewhere would listen to that and think, is that suspicious? You know, based yeah. on what you said a moment ago, yeah, yeah, is yeah. that normal activity? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because at that time, no one was sure as to why Brixton was shut. Yeah. Um, it was completely innocent reason why it was shut. I, th- I think there may have even been a, because of the day before, a, a, a scare call or yeah. a hoax call. Yeah, yeah. Um, but his actions were completely innocent. Yeah, yeah. Even at that early stage. But to us reporting, if you... You know, the commentary is going to say he's turned on his heels and he's yeah, yeah, running yeah. back to a bus. Yeah, yeah. Someone typing that up and relaying that to management. That looks like classic kind yeah. of surveillance, doesn't it? So you'll it's get, like saying, you'll you know, get, you'll he... get off a, a subject, we'll, we'll get off a train. Uh, we'll, just as the doors are closing, they'll jump back on the train again, won't they? Yeah, uh, completely I, I, innocent behaviour. And, and, but... and the thing is, we've, we've all done that, haven't we? I've done that. Yeah. You've done yeah. that. We've all done it, haven't we? But when a terrorist does it, it's kind of surveillance, isn't it? It's it's um, it's <laughs> very when, unfortunate. I say when a terrorist, when someone who might be a terrorist does it, yes, it and looks that, really suspicious, doesn't it? What you what you've said there, you know, that's key to this whole thing. You know, it, throughout from start to finish, you know, there was still in in my mind, and certainly those around me, you know, this this might be a failed suicide bomber, and therefore, you know, you have to report accurately what you're seeing. But you can't then quantify it. There isn't the time to then say, the reason I'm saying this is suspicious is because of X, Y, and Z. It just gets reported. 
and at the debrief later on you might be able to expand on it and discuss it but you know in this case there wasn't that luxury to have so he then boards the same bus uh, and the bus travels northbound unfortunately again the officer that was on the bus had got off cannot because of tradecraft reasons and tactics Hmm. get back on the same bus just in case so there is an area of weakness around our surveillance because the subject you would argue is still not under control again Mm. and worst case scenario he's been on target on the first bus he's gone to get on target for the underground and is now potentially back on target on the same bus and it's i can imagine hairs on backs of necks were starting to stand up elsewhere yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in in our mind on the ground it's very much a case of Christ, we've got to get a hold of this person, you know, not because yeah. we expect them to detonate or do anything immediately, but our job is to follow them and keep them under control. Yeah. But I think elsewhere, based on reports that have come out afterwards and evidence, I think they were up in the ante and believing at this stage that we're following someone that's suspicious. Right. Come from the address. And do you think uh, that it's was, doing a bit of anti? So, so yeah, so, so, so the, the jumping back on the bus thing is the point where it makes the hair stand up on the back of people's necks, isn't it? I think so. And you add to that, you know, why, you know, question continually being asked, you know, why you still follow? Have you identified them? Who is this person? And you can't give answers because you don't know the answers to those questions. Um, and you're feeding back everything you're seeing and hearing. Uh you know, I've no idea or I had no idea at the time what other information strands were coming into that control room. Yeah. But if they're solely listening to ours, I completely understand why they're thinking, you know, potentially this is this is one of our subjects. Yeah. Um, whereas very much on the ground, it's we're still trying to find out if this is one of our subjects. Yeah, and they're yeah. quite, quite yeah, yeah. different mindsets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've seen it from both ends because I ran the counterterrorism operations room in the West Midlands counterterrorism yeah. unit. Um, you know, in the in the latter sort of during a very very busy period, um, four or five years after these events, uh, and and I know how quickly wires can get crossed within that command platform, um, and and I and I had the benefit, I suppose, of having been a surveillance officer. And knowing, and I could visualize when I was listening to the surveillance commentary, I can visualize what's actually happening on the ground. Whereas a lot of people who who end up in those crime platforms have never been on, have never been surveillance officers. So, so yeah, it can be a very, and, and very often, as you know, those control rooms are, are, met, are often many miles away from where the action's taking place, aren't they? Well, you've picked up on a really important and interesting part of, of, of the operation and what you say is so true to this operation in the control room um the surveillance monitor that is listening to our communication uh, and reporting has very little surveillance experience Mm. that is not deployed on any surveillance operations Uh, and equally some of the leadership advisors didn't have a great depth of knowledge around surveillance so Mm. um again complete contrast to to the modern era um but back then the control room um i'm sure you know that control room well you know it was it wasn't the biggest of offices or suites uh and by all mm. accounts there was a real hubbub going on in there it was carnage yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah lots yeah. of noises people talking over because it. it was the urgency of yeah, the operation yeah. we're dealing yeah. with yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, you've got you've got 
um, different departments in there and they all have their importance and yeah. the challenges of yeah, yeah. interoperability. I'm, I'm yeah. trying to put this delicately, you know, yeah, yeah. Who, who's in charge? And you've yeah. got a senior, senior officer in there who, mm. who takes control and, and rightly so and does mm. a fantastic job in there. Um, but again, with limited knowledge around the work yeah. that's going on on the yeah. ground. And, well, I can, and I can, so I, can I can think I've, of, I can think of several times whenever I was running those jobs, those big jobs, you know, and we were running with many, many teams, you know, up to, I think one job, we had something like 20 plus teams uh, running across a 24 hour period across multiple locations in the UK. Uh, and, and when it gets towards the, the point where, you know, you're looking to bring in a strike, and take people out at gunpoint um you know i can remember you know kicking people out of there just basically fucking them off out of there because uh, you want it to be a very calm um environment to work in um and, and i and i and i can certainly think of jobs where towards that sort of very critical moment where a decision had been made to take people out, you could have literally heard a pin drop in there. And that's yeah. exactly how you want it. Whereas, yeah. whereas, whereas I've also experienced the, 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 the we literally can't hear a bloody thing, you know, because people are running around, getting overexcited and all that. And I stuff. think it was more the latter on this occasion. Because of, you know, the, the significance of this, you know, the first time in the UK, I, 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 feel so sorry for them in there in in some ways because it must have been between a rock and a hard place um mm. I, I i am angry as well to be honest because mm. i wish there would have been a stop check at some point but again in the mm. time that was available maybe that wasn't even possible but um you know from things i've learned about it since um that that could have all been dealt with yeah, yeah. in a better way a different way um so he's on the so he's on he's back on the bus then um, and making towards um, Stockwell, then is that right? Yes. So, um, as I've already mentioned, you know the firearms teams are, are at our location, deployed, awaiting further instructions. Um, and and this is all unbeknown to to myself and surveillance colleagues on the team that are following this guy. So you know it, it, it's a bizarre situation where you have a support team with you that are willing, ready, capable to deal with the person you are following and awaiting instructions to do so. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't actually know they're there. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that that remained all the way through until the very latter stages. I had no concept that they were there. Um, would it have changed anything? I think personally, the surveillance reporting would have been um, enhanced I think we were doing the surveillance and the commentary for our purposes, trying to establish the ID, who we what the location, you know, all those things that we do on a daily basis. Yeah. When you know that there's a team ready and waiting, it ups the ante again, doesn't it? And you, you, yeah, you switch yeah. on that extra step. You go yeah. that further mile to clarify yeah. and quantify what you're saying, because you know, someone's going to have a, a cause and effect on what you, what you are reporting. Yeah. Uh, but because we didn't know, you know, we're, we're almost just going about our day-to-day -day business, albeit the subject, the risk, the threat is completely off the scale, um, which was unfortunate because they are with us and they're trying to make ground to keep up with us yeah. as we're following the bus. 
Okay. So that you you have to picture the scene, you know, and certainly listeners that aren't from this world. We've got the bus with the subject on. We've got a surveillance officer now back on the bus. We've got uh, a convoy of covert police vehicles with surveillance officers in uh, trying to maintain the follow, mm-hmm. stay in communication with their colleague on the bus. Um, further back behind us, as I've said, unbeknown to us at that time, of covert firearms vehicles so there's quite a snake of yep. vehicles all trying to close up in rush hour traffic yeah um towards you know one of the busiest areas of south london so you know it's uh <laughs> the carnage continues mm-hmm. um and slowly the bus makes its way up towards the stockwell junction with the clapham road yep. um and you know throughout that time the, the phone calls are, are going in the in the team leader's car. Yeah. Is it him? Is it him? Um, the question was asked, well, if you can't say if it's him or not, can you give us a percentage oh, as to great. whether you think it's him? And oh, great. I remember looking That's at helpful. the team leader. He looked at me and we were like, uh, you know, are they serious? You know, yeah. if we say 60%. Oh, my God. Are they going to do something that we don't know about? Or, you know, is, yeah. and, and, and his answer was, you know, that's impossible. You can't ask me that. Yeah. Having, having learned from it afterwards, I do understand the question because it of may course. have been yeah, yeah, yeah. a piece of the jigsaw puzzle from yeah. other Intel sources. So yeah. in some ways I always thought it was a, it was a ridiculous question to ask, but you know, afterwards you're thinking, yeah, it's a valid question to ask to be yes. fair. I mean, I can, I can understand someone asking the question, but it's a question that would be asked by someone who's probably never been on the surveillance team. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, crikey, well, if I say 75%, am I, am I saying this person's 75% a failed suicide bomber? What action is going to happen to him? It's like, and I, yeah. I don't even know. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm about 50 yeah, at the moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or am I It's like you question yeah. yourself. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as, a, as a surveillance photographer, I would frequently see the same subject on multiple occasions on multiple days and I might have seen them half a dozen times before and I would know that person and then then you see them the next time you think oh is it is it him is it him you know and that might be just because of the light the levels of light it might be just um a slightly he got out of bed with his hair all over the place a bit unshaven or whatever or just some something about his clothing or the way he's walking or something like that. So well, I think you're right. So many we, times we've identified people on their, you know, their habitual usage of the same trainers, you know, with certain markings or emblems on. And, you know, this is a, a method that is used, you know, mm-hmm. uh, especially when, you know, you're looking at close associates who are very similar looking or or relatives that are very similar looking yeah, yeah, um, yeah. to try and cut down the, the errors. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very reflective. And it's, I'm conscious that it's coming across that, you know, we're trying our best to do what we do and that's follow this person. But it's it's fair to say, you know, there were things on the surveillance team that could have been done better. And one of those things, um, we had uh, a surveillance officer come and join us in the team leader's car that had been on one of the bus journeys with the subject. And he jumped in the back of the car and said, Look, you know, I, 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 I've looked at him. I don't think it's the person from the photo. Just that's my opinion um and that was it he got out and carried on the surveillance and one of the criticisms was the fact that the team leader didn't report back to the control room that somebody on the team was 
suggesting this might not be yeah the person we were looking for yeah. and I, again i i get that i think it would have been fair to give a balanced view you've got myself the team leader others putting up descriptions and you know thinking this this is a good potential good possible yeah and that's how it was referred to a good possible yeah. for our subject from the photograph and the briefing bearing in mind that was a pretty shocking photograph um, and we're happy that it's consistent with the person that has come from the address it would have been probably right and proper to inform the control room that yes some people felt that way but also one person didn't feel that way mm. and i don't think the control room got the balanced view from the surveillance team that maybe they they could have had um but again do you stop and do every do you do a round robin and say well tom do you think it's him and you know do you feed that back or is it an overall assessment yeah, from yeah, the yeah. team and the yeah, team yeah. leader through the team leader uh, he, he got he got you know a pretty hard time about that and i i get it and you know i think he should have passed on that information mm. um but chose not to and it's, mm. it's a it's a tough call but it's it's another tick in the box it's another yeah, yeah, fact yeah yeah yeah, that, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah 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 normally a, a would that a, matter a bit of a bit of a perfect storm isn't it yeah yeah unfortunate so anyway he gets off the bus then at stockwell and uh, where are you at that point so um the team leader had driven ahead uh, we've managed to get ahead of the bus and i jumped out on foot and was waiting at the bus stop uh, just outside the natwest bank um outside stockwell underground station uh and i could see the bus coming towards us completely unaware of firearms activity you know the fact that they're trying to get close to us uh and on the radio you know people are reporting what they're seeing um and uh the bus draws in closer uh and um i hear tones mm -hmm. suggesting to me that the subject's about to move uh, and the bus stops short of the actual stand the center double doors open and um the person in the double denim the person that i'd seen earlier mm. when he first came out of the address stepped off the bus yeah. so for me that was right it's the right guy as in it's the same guy that started the surveillance follow yeah uh, i remember thinking at that point i still cannot say you know i'm not going to put my hand up and say that is the guy from the photo because yeah, yeah. well if you weren't if you weren't sure yeah. of the the first time, yeah. you're not going to be any surer yeah. the second time, are you? No, but I was happy that it was the same person that we were following. So in yeah, my yeah, mind, yeah, yeah. well, we'll keep the follow going. That's that's the purpose. That's what right. we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he starts to head off towards Stuckport, um Underground Station. Now, I'm aware that um, my colleague has, uh, has identified Stockwell as a point of danger. You know, it's another tube station. Yeah. Um, and he's punched on ahead. He'd... he'd um, had been dropped off there by one of the photo photography officers yep. who had been trying his damnedest to get an image of this guy. Um, but again, even if he had, the systems in place weren't there to be able to transmit this back to a control room. You know, yeah. clearly different now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but had done a sterling job trying to get an image, but was unable to. Mm. But had dropped my colleague at the underground station. Now, it happens to be... This is the same guy that got on the bus in the first instance that's wearing the double denim yeah. uh, and the olive skin. So he pushes okay. in ahead. 
So you've got um, two almost identical individuals, the subject and the surveillance officer making their way down into the tube. I mean, you just cannot make it up. It was it was like for like the only difference is that the surveillance officers were in a single strap rucksack. Um, so in, in some ways, probably looks a bit more suspicious than uh, the mm. actual person we're following anyway. But um, regardless, he goes into the ticket office. The subject of the surveillance goes into the ticket office and I follow him behind the two. What's interesting um, for, for this part is the failed bombers from the day before, the point of entry into the transport system before they carried out their failed attacks was Stockwell. And there's video footage um, of them going across the road, outside, uh, crossing the big junction and going into Stockwell Underground Station. Right. In, in, a, in a foursome, in they walk with their rucksacks on. Uh, they go onto a transport system and they de- try to detonate their devices. They fail uh, because the makeup's wrong uh, and then they flee. And that's what's led us to be here today. So, so they, so sorry, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. They'd actually tried to detonate at Stockwell. No, the point of entry was Stockwell. So they'd gone on at Stockwell. And then from uh, there, they'd gone off to their various right, locations. right, right. But the point being that that the point they, of entry that Stockwell was, they, was yeah. the common denominator. Yes. The, the day before when they had tried yeah. to detonate, albeit maybe not at Stockwell, but, but no, that's but, right. But they, they joined the, the transport system. system. Yeah, in, in the same way that the seven seven bombers had got on at Luton and made their way to King's Cross, our current batch on the twenty first of July jumped on at Stockwell. And then thinned out oh, to the other. See, I, I didn't. I didn't realise that. Well, that you know, that's a. I can definitely see then why everybody was shitting themselves. Well, the footage. You know what? I have that footage, and I show the footage of the 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 actual bombers going on on through Stockwell, and then you look at the footage of the male we're following and the surveillance officers, and it's like it's a mirror image of what's going on. So if if the control room and the ops room and the intel cells were aware of that from the day before, and I'm led to believe they had seized all the videotapes, which is why there's no footage when we go downstairs. Of course, again, inference has to be drawn from that. You know, you've Mm. got someone that's come from the potential address transport system, on off, gone to get on the underground, has now gone in the same point of entry from the day before. Alarm bells must have been ringing in that control room and, yeah, people yeah. thinking what the hell is going on here yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which obviously leads to the decision from the hierarchy you know right we need to think about stopping this person so just uh, to remember just to remember that the person who was in overall control of of that decision on that day was Cressida Dick who then went on to become the commissioner of the Met and who um, you know was forced to resign very recently uh, and who finished her last day just last Sunday or oh, no, last Friday wasn't it so so yeah so it's kind of feels very weird to be talking about this you know with the benefit of the hindsight of everything that happened I suppose isn't it yeah and I, if, if I may I'll, I'll, I'll speak a little bit but you know I, I would add obviously this is my perspective of, yeah, of yeah. things and um, her role in in this incident and my, my comments would be that I, as I understand it, um, the decision for her to be in the control room was in respect of her 
authorizing rank for a Kratos type scenario, a suicide bomber. Mm-hmm. However, there were some flaws in the plan for suicide bombing in so much that that policy was really designed around pre-planned events such as trooping of the colour, uh, you know, changing of the guard, yeah. where if members of the public phone up and said, I think I've got some someone who's going to blow themselves up, they're sweat, you know, they're doing all these classic symptoms, they got wires hanging from a backpack. Yeah. That was a way where a senior officer could make a decision about a sniper yeah. dealing with a, a threat of that nature. Yeah. Um, the other was a spontaneous incident. And, you know, that would be, again, usually a member of the public phoning up and saying, look, I've just witnessed this and, you know, there is a threat and assets would be deployed to deal with that. So it's very clear. It's like a London, there, you Brit- know, there a was London a couple Bridge of type options. scenario, you yeah. know, where it's very obvious what you're dealing with. Yeah, what we didn't have at that time was a scenario where a pre-planned surveillance, armed surveillance operation would develop into an extreme threat, a Kratos suicide bombing. There there was no plan or policy on that because it was so unusual. And therefore, you know, for her to be in there for that role was actually restricting her because it's my understanding, she couldn't actually give that authorization to shoot because it wasn't allowed under the policy, which Mm. is ridiculous. And anyone listening would think that is ridiculous, but Mm. clearly there are certain protocols. So my comments around um, mom, Dick, would be the I think she was up against it from the get-go. And I think she did a fantastic job in in there uh, with her decision making. When mm. it come down to it and she was put under pressure, she mm. gave the authorization for the surveillance to to do the intervention. Um and I think that must have been a really challenging decision to make. Um so but, what were you, what were you in terms of where you were and what you were being told, then what was the what was the instruction to yeah, you? Yeah, so I jumped ahead a bit. So let's go back to outside the station. You know, we know, as with Brixton, there are some issues with going into an underground station. Um, and my colleague, uh, who deployed ahead, very experienced officer, you know, possibly one of the, you'll hate me saying it, one of the best surveillance officers of a generation. Uh, very experienced, newest stuff. If it was going to come on top, it'd yeah. be the man you want next and it, to you. And and it's probably in the benefit. I won't name him, but he's a he's a good mate of mine, and I know exactly who you're talking about. So yeah, I haven't said that just because he's a mate of yours, but no. uh, <laughs> anyone no, who knows is, him, he is, will, he is a, he's a he's a first class operator, yeah. um, highest caliber. It wouldn't be right if I don't dig him out for stealing the eyeball off me, but that that would be fine. But um, so he he is aware that we are in potential trouble here because if this person we're following goes underground, we're going to lose comms, we run the risk of compromise, blah, 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 all those things. So he asks the team leader, um, you know, we're getting to that that line in the sand. Do you want him lifted? No. Do you want him stopped? Do you want him detained, arrested is what he's meaning. Um, I relay that. And the team leader hears it. Now, we carry on our surveillance. Bear in mind, I'm describing it now. It's going to take a few minutes. But on the ground, this is taking seconds. Mm-hmm. The team leader phoned the control room and asked the question, we're offering to do it. Do you want us to do it? We haven't identified him, blah, blah, blah. We're still in process. Do you want him stopped? And the surveillance coordinator listening into our comms went away to ask the hierarchy, yes or no. And... As a result of the firearms officers still not being able to get close enough to 
carry out their intervention, even though we didn't know about it, I'll restress. Mm-hmm. Um, the decision was made for surveillance to do an intervention, something not tried and tested, certainly around this type of threat. Um, yes, we're carrying firearms for the reasons we've clarified earlier, but to step forward and deal with the subject is out of the norm. It had yeah. been done previously, I'm led to believe, with other subjects from different terrorist organisations yeah. and done effectively and well. Um, but this was a different kettle of fish. So I think there was some hesitancy. So, so just for clarity, um, the intervention that you were being directed to do was an armed intervention to, but not to shoot him, presumably to to stop him from getting on the tube and to detain him. Is that correct? Yeah. So I, I really need to be careful about how I clarify this. So, yes, we are armed. My colleague and I are armed and the people behind us directly are armed. When he offered up to do an intervention, and I, I, I'm hope you know I hope I, I believe I'm speaking for him. His mindset at that time was we were going to do an unarmed intervention, right? Yeah, as yeah. It in, doesn't, yeah, yeah. Sorry, just uh, just just yeah. to be clear, uh, it doesn't have to be armed, does it? No, of course. There's a range of options you can use as a trained firearms officer, um, from you know taking hold, grabbing someone by the arm. Uh, taking them robustly to the ground, pinning them to the floor, uh, all the way up to uh, a baton strike. Uh, Didn't have CS, but, you know, other tactical options. Non-lethal options, yeah. Yeah, of which a firearms challenge is one. But his mindset and my mindset were that it was going to be a hands-on, a grab and a a restrain with armed cover, should we need it. But at that point in the follow we hadn't seen anything that had made us suspect um, he was carrying weapons. Yeah. But in the same comment, I knew what I was carrying and therefore he still had to be considered a threat. And my colleague was very much aware of that mm-hmm. and believed him to be an unknown risk. You know, yeah. Yeah. Th- there are things he could have had concealed on him, whether it was yeah. a, a secondary device, a, a man portable device, because that's what we've been trained on. He wasn't carrying a rucksack at any point during the follow, which mm. was obviously one of the misnomers. Um, bulky jacket, yeah, un- untrue, normal everyday clothing. But right. I was wearing a, a ballistic vest under mine and a right. communications harness, a Glock pistol and spare magazine, handcuffs, so if I can carry all that, then someone else can carry yeah, other yeah. things as well. Yeah. And that was a, that was a real challenging point from the yeah. and let's from be some fair, of the, let's, the let's be honest, none of us none of us are explosives experts, are we? I mean, no, exactly. And 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 I think um, so. So getting back to the actual uh, thing we're discussing, you know, the, the offer was made. I think with the mindset knowing, look, we are going to run the risk of something worse happening if we don't deal with it now. We will plan very spontaneously, and I'll follow my colleague's lead. He'll grab him. I'll grab him. We'll support each other. Firearms, bat, and cuff him up. Get him to the floor. Call in others, and we'll, you know, we'll deal with him that way. And and just uh, out of curiosity, because you're on an on an active follow, presumably you're not able to actually have that discussion with your colleague, um, or were you having a? Did you did you have an opportunity to? come up with some back of the fag packet plan no this was pure shooting from the hip and um again 
wouldn't that have been lovely to have a quick little scrum down and say, right, when he comes in there, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. But it wasn't. It was very much the case of I knew my colleague was in there and armed. I I know his capabilities because I I used to teach the officer safety training. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew what his skill set was because I taught it and I'd been on the wrong end of it. Mm-hmm. I knew he was strong enough to deal with it. Um, I was more than happy with my capability around subject handling. Uh, and it, it felt very much a nod and a wink. And yeah. if we get the, the go ahead, we know exactly what we're going to do. Right. If it doesn't go well, then clearly, you know, we're going to be held accountable and everything else that comes along with that. Yeah, but yeah. I, I knew from the commentary that there were a lot of surveillance officers from our team in and around us. Mm-hmm. And I think strength in numbers, you know, it, yeah. It was right to ask the question. It was right for it to be considered. Mm. Whether it would have been right or wrong to do it, we'll, we'll never know. But I can mm. see pros and cons for for both options. Yeah. Um, okay. Because let's say, you know, let's say he was our subject and he did have a device on him and our actions then initiate something happening. Mm. Of course, we are then accountable and responsible yeah. potentially. Well you're, well, you're also dead, probably. Yeah, you, you don't. You're not thinking along those lines. But when it comes to trials and inquests, yeah, you know, no stones left unturned, and they question your decision making. And I think it was a really interesting point to hear all sides of the argument on that one. And I, mm. again, you yeah. know, you put it out to your audience. Now, what but, would you do in that situation? Yeah. But this is the whole thing, isn't it? You know, these inquiries are held many uh, months and often yeah. years afterwards, and they have the luxury of going through every single piece of communication, every single document, uh, interviewing, seeing the transcripts of uh, interviews with every single person involved in it, and then they've got the luxury to sort of pontificate on the rights and the wrongs of it. Was in reality, when you're having to deal with stuff, as the police do all the time in real time, and make decisions dynamically, then yeah. it's a whole different ballgame altogether, isn't it? I think at that point it would have been really helpful to know that we had firearms support, you know, proper firearms team you know because you know we're carrying firearms yes but we're not trained to the high skill level that the so19 officers were or co19 at that time yeah. uh, in being able to deal with a, a high risk threat but if we if we were aware of their presence close to our locality uh, I think it would have helped in our decision making on the ground as to whether we would have taken hold of this person or not um, rather than allowing the potential for mistakes to happen further on. Uh, okay. So, yeah, so you, hindsight. So you guys, you're going down onto the platform then? So take yeah, so, I mean, he, he, he literally, his demeanour didn't change. You know, there was a lot of reporting about police challenging and vaulting of barriers and, you know, hurdling over the ticket styles to get and the police were, ch- you know, it, it just didn't happen. And he basically took a, a card out of his pocket swiped through went through the barriers um, a colleague and i followed and he headed down the escalator um again nothing nothing that i can look back on and say that particular point was suspicious in in terms of activity mm-hmm. um now clearly elsewhere lots was going on and um the question that was asked by the team leader about do you want him detained in effect um an answer never came from the control room in part because the team leader wanted to listen to the follow and the call was uh, finished before he was given an answer. Yes, the decision came 
from Mom Dick for us to do the stop, the surveillance, but it never reached us um, because time had passed. The communications have failed. We were now through the barrier, so we never received that that and message com- from and, and the correct me if I'm wrong, comms dying on the tube in those days was pretty much non-existent, wasn't it? Yeah, you can talk amongst yourself in close proximity, but you can't hear what's going on above ground. You can hear relays every now and again, or certain stations in London, you know, if they're not too deep, would would be able to pick up comms. But yeah, it's, it was a strange thing. So we've asked the question. Control have made the decision eventually for yes, you can do it. However, that never reaches us because the comms are gone. The team leader's not on the phone anymore. And the dynamics change once more because the firearms officers and now reporting that they are close enough to come and assist us to the hierarchy in the firearms control room, which is next to Mom Dick. So very quickly after she said, yes, surveillance can do it, that order's rescinded, and it's now let's leave it to the experts in intervention to therefore go forward and deal with this person because they're they're in close proximity. Yeah. All of which is going on without myself, my colleague, and anyone in close proximity having a, a clue that they were so you're just getting on with that. your with your plan and yeah bliss, and, and bliss, I have to blissfully be honest, unaware of all of that yeah it, it became quite twitchy at that point because w- w- the dynamics have changed in the surveillance follow at this point and I, I do remember feeling very uncomfortable because you know I, I know we're potentially going on a, a train journey now with in my mind someone who is potentially a failed suicide bomber and that that makes me nervous um adrenaline's clearly flowing mm-hmm. you're trying to keep a grip of your your emotions and reporting what you're seeing and not losing the person you're following and sticking with your colleague um thinking okay so we could potentially be on our own now and and therefore i might have to do something that's not my specialist subject yeah, yeah, um yeah yeah i'm feeling very uncomfortable about christ this person could could be out intent to to yeah. do something yeah, um yeah and it just it felt very very challenging and difficult oh, yeah. well like, i can't even i can't even imagine quite honestly um now. and then you know things things change you know it very quickly this is the upward scale of of the snowball effect we've had all these things going wrong so far about identification and um during the surveillance follow the firearms guys are listening to our communications as well right um intermittently yeah and they have also a couple of them have also formed the opinion that this person we're following has been identified as one of the subjects now i know for a fact and and others will still challenge this that that came from the surveillance team but it never came from the surveillance team and and when you look back through the surveillance log and also the log of the surveillance officer in the control room that was type in what we were saying mm. at no point does it become an identification and did, did did they ever get to the bottom of why or who told where that information <clears throat> came from that there'd been a positive identification no um, i i think inf- inference is is one element i believe that a mistake was also made in the control room around the phraseology um and whereby in, in the surveillance log, it says uh, PIW, possibly identical with, mm. and that was our opinion, is a good possible based on what we've seen. In the control room, I, I think they took that to mean positively identified with. Oh, God. Um, 
the interesting part about it is that the officer that was typing up for the control room keeps it as uh, possibly identified with, but no point does he say positive. So where it's gone from his reporting, listening to our comms, to the actual senior leadership, yeah, I don't know where that miscommunication. Yeah. Well, comes from. well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm not even going to guess about that particular scenario because I wasn't there. But but what I what I do know is that when it reaches that stage of an operation, that very critical end state of an operation, you'll have a number of different disciplines in the room, won't you? You'll have yeah. you'll you'll have investigators, you'll have senior leaders, senior commanders, you'll have uh, people like me who was running the ops room and my staff who were you know monitoring the comms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now. I can see, I'm not saying this is what happened, but I can see how PIW, because that's a standard surveillance terminology, isn't it? Po possibly identi identical with. Um, I could see how a non-surveillance officer could interpret that as yeah. positively identified with, you know. And, I think and again, when you add it into the other things that have been going on, you can yes. see where the crossover is. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's... Um, like I said a, a few moments ago, it's a shame there was never that stop check. Um, there was never that confirmation call to yeah. the team leader to say, "Right, we understand you've identified him," because that would have that would have stopped it in its tracks, and it would yeah. have been, "No, we haven't," and yeah. therefore the the um, the firearms team that were actually therefore then released to go forward and and do their intervention. Would have just had the restraints put on them, uh, yeah. and may not have even deployed. The follow yeah. might have gone on the underground, yeah, yeah, but it, yeah. but because of the the miscommunication, all the other factors that have got us yeah. to this point yeah. where we are, yeah. you've got people thinking it is. You've got the surveillance team still trying to find out if it is. Um, yeah. yeah, very messy. So so talk talk me through what's happening sort of in real time then, as as you and your colleague. Um, follow on down to the platform again interestingly if you ever see you you, you can find it on on social media and, and other platforms the footage of the failed bombers going down you, you there is footage of them going down the escalators as well once they've gone into stockwell uh, and you know us going down is a mirror image so the subject that we're following goes down the escalator he's standing and about halfway down he moves to his left and begins to run down the escalator. Uh, my colleague transmits that, I transmit it, and I can hear a motorcyclist from the surveillance team relay it. So I know that someone's heard it elsewhere, and that is he is running down towards the platforms. Again, you know, we're saying what we're seeing. Are people interpreting that to be something naughtier than it is? Mm -hmm. uh, and we're towards the platforms and and um he leaves the bottom of the escalator. One, one thing I do remember about the escalator is I, I felt the gust of wind coming up the escalator, which, you know, yeah. most people recognise that's either a train towards the platform yeah. or a train's already gone. But looking back, his mindset must have, have been along the lines where I don't want to miss this train. I'm going to I'm going to yeah. get down there completely yeah. innocent, like yeah, yeah. Brixton. Yeah, we've um, all done it. We've all done it. Yeah. Um, so he goes down, he goes through the tunnel and steps onto an open set of double doors uh, with a train that is sat held waiting on the platform. Uh, my colleague goes down, enters the train through, 
set of double doors uh, and I follow suit and I jump on the train through the same set of double doors and we all take up a seated position on the train um, and uh, all three of us are facing back out towards the platform and the train seemed to just hold and sit there. So, so how far, how, so just to, for clarity, how far are you away from him at this point? Um, I am sat, so for those, I'll, I'll describe it as per the tube layout, which is, you know, the different trains now. Uh, but back then you had uh, a carriage was made up of a single double door to one end, then a set of double doors, then a further set of double doors, and then a single door. So four entry yeah. and exit points. Yeah. And within each one is a row of seats facing in towards the middle of the carriage, mm -hmm. which are divided by toughened glass screens by each set of double doors. Yeah. Um, I entered the first set of double doors and took up a seat there. The subject that we were following turned to his right, moved up to the second set of double doors and sat beside the Perspex glass, tough and glass screen. Yeah. And the other surveillance officer sat two or three seats along from him. Right. So um, distance wise, I don't know, uh, 20 foot, 25 feet. Okay. Um, so you've thinking, got a clear, a clear unobstructed yeah, view and the, the, of them. Yeah, the, the tube was, it was busy-ish uh, because of what had happened the previous days and weeks. I think people were really reluctant to travel on the tube. And, you know, some of your listeners will probably remember this. You know, it was it was such a strange environment. You talked about it earlier. Um, tube travel wasn't high on people's agenda and everyone was looking really suspicious at each other. It wasn't a particularly nice place to be. Um, it was it was medium, I would say, in terms of traffic. Right. Uh, a few people standing up in the, in the standing areas, but a few people dotted around on seats. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, I could see him. And I was aware of where my colleague was sat. And we're sitting there thinking, you know, we, we're in for a bit of a tube ride here. This is, this is going to be a bit of an unusual one. This is very uncomfortable, but we'll go with it because yeah. we've got no direction from elsewhere. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, it was us, us two and him going on a follow. Uh, and that, that would be normal trade craft in terms of, you know, numbers you want to deploy down there. You don't need yeah. loads because they're going to be doing other things. Yeah. Um, but the train just sat there. And it, it, it was bizarre. It was almost like it's time standing still. Um, probably wasn't for that long, to be mm. fair, but it, it mm. felt like it. Uh, maybe because it was just more of an opportunity for me to become more nervous, you know, as to what the hell we're doing down here uh, yeah. without any yeah. direction or, you know, any any idea of what we're going to be doing, yeah. where are we're going to go. At this point, have you got eye contact with your colleague? Because he sat the other side of the subject, I, I haven't. No. Um, okay. And uh, I remember questioning myself, thinking, you know, what's it going to take for him to do something, for me to then do something? Um, you know, if, if, if he starts attacking members of the public, am I happy to step forward? Clearly, yes, because that's what training and, and, and muscle memory and all those things would, would hopefully kick in. Um, if he runs, are we going with him? And, you know, you start questioning you. you because yeah. it's a pause in time, which we haven't had yeah, so yeah. far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You start going over the options and the yeah, the old fuck moment, really. Yeah, of, yeah, you know, yeah. What the well, hell the, are we doing here? the reality is that a surveillance team is there to surveil an individual or individuals, and to remain covert, isn't it? So, so to step outside of that kind of standard way of working 
albeit that you're police officers and you've done laid hands on people many times yeah. before in different roles, etc. But uh, you know, it's a it's a very, very, very strange scenario to be in, and I can't think of a single time job I was ever involved in as a surveillance officer, or where we were, where we were told to physically lay hands on someone. Yeah, I've done it once, and it it, it was almost like a, a comedy of errors. You know, it's um you do it, but you're not proficient at it, like others trained to do that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we're sat there, um, and unusually. In the next few seconds, I see another surveillance officer come down onto the platform. And I think, oh, he's excellent. He's come to join us. We've got more numbers now. And, you know, this is going to work out okay. More chance of keeping the operation going. And he stepped on the train, looked up and down, and then stepped off and went back to the escalators. And, and I thought, well, that's that's unusual. And it transpires. It's because we were such a new team. He, he didn't recognise me. Right. Um, so because of what had happened, I, I moved forward and stepped next to the open double doors yeah. um, and, and just stood there waiting to see yeah. if he would come back. So it was like, it's me, um, but he didn't. Uh, and the next thing I hear is, I'll describe it as a bit of a, a disturbance in the environment, a bit of a kerfuffle going on in the escalator, some noise. And, you know, I, I'm pretty adamant. You know, I heard police being shouted in whatever context and, yeah, it transpires. They were shouting to clear people out of the way so they could get through. But in effect, the firearms team had been deployed and and put at their intervention authority by the right. control room. And they were coming through uh, and it was themselves that were jumping the barriers because they didn't have the means to get through the ticket barriers that we did. Yeah. So the reporting by the members of the public was actually reporting on the firearms officers in their urgency to get to us, yeah. uh, jumping barriers and... Um, making a disturbance the firearms were drawn police caps are on and they're making their way down the escalators towards our platforms um and then and then without any kind of warning whatsoever via comms or prior planning i see firearms officers burst onto the platform um and i was just in complete shock at what i was seeing because so were they in plain clothes they were in plain clothes but you know, you, they, they won't thank me for saying it, but you can't mistake a firearms officer, certainly yeah, yeah. back then. You know, they, they're quite robust looking. Uh, they had police caps on a couple of them. They got large weapons on display and that, that look of purpose in their eyes. And you, you know who yeah. they are. Yeah, Although yeah, we're yeah. not briefed together, I've never met these guys before. I know who they are. What I'm yeah. not sure about is why they're here yeah. and what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, and to just pause there for a second and my colleague was you know quite clear in his thinking around this and so am i you know it's like if there's there's so many ifs around this and i, I apologize for the if element to it but let's say this person was who we thought he was at this moment in time and he has a credible capability and sees this happening it's potentially going to force him to an action yeah. you know because he's going to compromise the operation he's going yeah. to compromise himself so it would have mm -hmm. been a moment where if he was going to do something i detonate a device or I start fighting attacking that was it because the the, the operation went from covert to overt very yeah. quickly yeah, yeah yeah and there was no handover there was no passage of time where it was sneaky beaky 
and now bells and whistles. It, yeah, it yeah, just happened yeah. so instantaneously um, that I think it just stunned everyone. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, you know, it's quite a transformation, as you well know, going from that covert to overt stage, that intervention mm-hmm. stage is, yeah. is a massive step forward. Yeah, and, yeah. It, and it was quite confusing because, you know, I also felt the same as my colleague. You know, this this um, this position where the subject is sat is actually quite a good, strong position of strength. Mm-hmm. Likewise, he had a good position of strength on the bus in terms of skill set. He was mm-hmm. able to see out to the platform and it's a good position yeah. to be in if you're a bad person. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. With In this case, completely innocent. But um, mindset wise, very clever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking. Um, but I do remember thinking, Christ, what what are they doing here? And what do they know that we don't know? Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, makes yeah. me then question, what the hell am I doing here? Yeah. If this has gone to a level where they're now involved. Uh-huh. And um, I think that's what troubled me afterwards for quite a long time, thinking, geez, you know, how much risk was I in at that point? Yeah. Um, yeah. Bearing in mind who people thought this guy was. Yeah. Um, but I knew because I hadn't seen them all day and had no knowledge of them being there, that they won't have seen our subject either. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. there was so a moment they where they don't really, they're going to be seeing them for the first time, aren't they? Well, they're on a, they're on a fishing trip basically to try and find the person and to all intents and purposes, it's, it's their mindset that I discover later that they probably think he's gone off on the train and they're too late. Um, but what happens is, you know, I make eye contact with the guys at the front. Uh, your and colleague, they your surveillance colleague. Sorry, your surveillance colleague. No, the firearms guy. Oh, sorry, so right, sorry. yeah, sorry. So they come down onto the platform through the tunnel and make eye contact with me because I'm stood at the doors, looking out towards the tunnel, hoping the surveillance colleague will come back. But it's not; it's firearms officers now. Right. Uh, and we make eye contact, and clearly they recognise me because I must look like a stereotypical surveillance officer. Um, and I know them because they're as they are dressed and whatnot and, and firearms, etc. And I'm thinking, geez, don't come my way. He's not here. Mm. And I put my hand across my chest and, and sort of indicate with my hand, go that way, trying to direct them towards the other set of double doors yeah, yeah. where the subject is and towards my colleague um, to try and give them a chance to get to him before either he sees them and does something quite drastic or the doors close and the train leaves and he now knows police are looking at him and you know it, the, yeah, the operation yeah, yeah. compromised yeah um so they do and they very quickly make their way towards the other open set of double doors um and at this point uh my colleague has stepped from his chair and moved towards the open set of double doors where the subject is yeah. because he also recognises that they don't know where this guy is. Yeah. So he puts out his arm and indicates by saying he's here, pointing at the subject that we're following, with nothing more than expecting them to step forward and, and do the arrest, the intervention, Yeah. Um, because they can't do it unless we identify the person we've been following. Yeah. Uh, you know, and our mindset is still, it's a potential uh, so it's starting to fall into place. Yeah, maybe elsewhere something's happened and he needs arresting, you know, yeah. um, and that's what happens. But unfortunately, at that point, it, um, it, it doesn't go great. And, and um, the firearms officers 
see my colleague who's dressed in denim with his olive skin and his rucksack and believe he is the subject that we've been following. Oh, my God. So they come up into the aim with their firearms and are literally just about to pull the trigger and, and shoot my colleague um, who's trying to introduce them to the person we've been following. Um, and it's a pure piece of surveillance luck that he doesn't um, become a, 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 an innocent shooting victim himself because one of the firearms officers notices that the surveillance officer has got his foot against the door of the train carriage mm. and that old tried and tested method of stopping the doors from closing yeah, yeah. where the drivers can continually get pissed off because someone's mm. stopping the doors from closing but he's doing it to allow them to get on and the train not leave yeah and they pick up on that and they come off aiming at him and begin scanning the carriage again looking for the person who we've been following yeah um which saved his life that 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 very simple technique um further surveillance officers stepped onto the train where i was standing sorry yeah firearms officers stepped onto the train where i was standing uh, and again began searching the carriage and i'm thinking well, he's not down here so i grabbed one by the coat and we, we moved up the center of the carriage towards where my colleague and the male that we've been following was standing and at this point we're all stood within the proximity of the toughened glass screen yeah. uh, by the set of open double doors and it's at this point that the person we've been following it's difficult because the scene needs setting obviously you can imagine the panic in the members of the public yes. sat on that carriage. Yes, I was just about to ask that actually. What on yes. earth, what what's describe, well describe that situation at that point? Uh, just I mean, most people listening to this would have heard of the flight or fight mechanism within a human being. You know, when you're put under threat, you were likely to do one of a couple of different things. And one is obviously run away, uh, curl up in a ball, you know, protect yourself. The other is step forward and defend yourself um, because adrenaline kicks in and sometimes you can't control which one that is. And many people don't know which one that is because it's very difficult to harness and, and channel that feeling. Um, it was it was one of pure fear. I think because of what had happened over the previous days and weeks on the underground system and in London in particular, there was this fear factor. And when you see a group of multiple officers running onto a platform with firearms displayed, screaming and shouting yeah, yeah. Uh, for people to get down. Clearly, it induces panic and fear. And mm. people fled. You know, they were they were going out of every door possible. Right, they were flapping. Uh, away from, you know, clearly, understandably, um, to the point they were they were trying to get out of any door they could apart from the one where all these firearms guys are rushing towards yeah yeah um because that is human nature you've got to get the hell out of there uh bags were being left mobile phones you know anything that was being carried you just dumped and yeah. they were gone yeah 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 um now the person we've been following um moved up from the chair he was sat in and moved towards the open set of double doors where my colleague had his foot in the door, and, and unfortunately, towards the doors where the firearms officers were coming in through. So he's he's basically doing exactly the same as all the other people on the carriage, i.e. get the fuck off the, the train. 
with, without doubt. I mean, he is clearly in as much fear as anyone else, you know, that the, the situation has presented itself in front of us, him, all those members of the public, that something's about to happen here and people are trying to escape uh, as best they can. And uh, unfortunately for him, yes, he, he tried to do the same, even though there were actions being directed towards him yeah. um, with firearms raised, etc. Uh, and I remember seeing it so vividly, you know, his, his action towards the open double doors, he leapt from his chair is how I describe it, because it was that instant panic of, I've got to get out of here. Yeah. Um, and obviously now, and very soon after the event, you know that is a completely innocent movement. And uh, yeah, yeah, But at yeah. the time, at the time, and you know, when I still replay it in my mind because it's so vivid, it was a very strange thing to do, to leap from a chair and run towards the danger rather yeah. than go yeah. an alternative way. So I think it's important at this point that we give him his, his name, John Charles, because we've been talking up until this point as the subject under surveillance, the person, blah, blah, but we know it's John Charles de Menezes, don't we? And, and um, so, so I just think out of courtesy to him and his family, we'll start referring to him as John Charles, if that's all right. Yeah, I completely agree. And, um, you know, later on we'll talk about when I, when I actually found out uh, that that's who he was. Um, but yeah, uh, and, and that's the, the terribly sad thing about it is because of uh, John Charles's innocent reaction to, uh, you know, the actions that had presented itself. Um, seeing that as a potential threat, my colleague stepped forward and took hold of him uh, and grabbed him. This is um, your surveillance colleague who looked, surveillance who colleague, looked yeah. remarkably like him. Yes. So you've now got two guys, oh uh, John God. Charles and my, and my colleague, um, who look very similar in physique, clothing, who are now entwined in an embrace um, where John Charles de Menezes is clearly no idea as what's going on no. uh, and is fighting uh, to escape because yeah. he's in fear. Yeah. You've got my colleague who is trying to uh, restrain the male who he believes may be a failed suicide bomber yeah. um, by restraining his arm movement, because that's our doctrine. That's what we're told. Yeah, Keep yeah. the hands safe and they won't be able to detonate anything. Yeah. Uh, so he's pinning his arms to his side, Yeah, you know, and they're rolling around and I'm stepping forward with his firearms guy thinking, Christ, you know, what, what is going on here? This so is, are they, are they stood up at this point? Are they, are they sort of on the floor or are they on the seats? Where are they? They had, my colleague had forced him back into the chair that he was sat in originally and was he he was back in his chair in the same position and my colleague had wrapped his arms around him and was pinning him to the chair so basically. So they're kind of face to face then? Um I would say um my colleague's head was more around the, the sternum area. Right, okay. Of John Charles de Menezes. Yeah. Um okay. uh, so it almost in a, a rugby tackle right, position. Yeah. yeah. Um you know, and you're trying to con, con, get your head around what this scene is now looking like and, and you know, uh, what I'm seeing in front of me. And you're helpless to do absolutely anything about it because there's so much noise reverberating around the carriage, uh, screaming, shouting. Um, and because of 
what they're seeing and what they've been told upstairs and what their uh, tactics and tradecraft are. The firearms guys enter the carriage and they deliver an amount of fatal shots to John Charles de Menezes whilst he is being restrained by my colleague. Um, and, you know, their mindset, uh, and, and hopefully at some point you'll get the chance to speak to speak to the guys, um, their mindset, you know, their, their threat assessment level is through the roof. You know, whatever they've gleaned yeah. from information upstairs to what they're seeing in front of them yeah. um, takes them to that point where they feel the only option they have is to do what they do, um, to do what they did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, clearly, it's it's a very disturbing and upsetting. And did scene. you are we you watching that as it happened in real time? Then, yeah. So I'm stood possibly two two to three feet away, um, and and almost feeling helpless because my role is done at this point. I've done my my. Uh, operational duty in so much that I'm following someone and this this handover has taken place rightly or wrongly for whatever reason unbeknown to me certain times but it's now gone from this covert to overt and my responsibility is relinquished and I actually now become an overt officer as well put my police cap on my weapons drawn um and I'm helping clear the carriage um but it's it's not quite over yet because one of the firearms officers still assesses my colleague to be the threat and grabs him and drags him to the carriage floor and points a firearm to the back of his head oh at which God. point my colleague's throwing his arms out to the side and is shouting police so they've behind. already so they've already shot john charles yeah and and then um your colleague my mate uh, is now having a gun pointed at his head yeah yes i mean clearly based on the identification issue you can see that the problems with it so they've one person has been robustly dealt with and now this other person wearing exactly the same but also carrying a rucksack uh you know is is still there so they're about to deal with him as well as far as you know my assessment is and i'm, I'm sure they would say the same until the point where my colleague throws his arms out and shouts please 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 and i'm screaming please 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 uh, and he's dragged off the carriage and I'm trying to explain to the firearms officers that he's a colleague. He's screaming, I'm a colleague. You know, this is a blue on blue as we know it. Yeah. Um, and then it, it very quickly goes, yeah, okay. And uh, the, the penny drops and, um, you know, we're prevented from yeah. any more, uh, you know, any, anything else happening that we didn't want to happen. Um yeah, yeah, and and then uh, things progress on from there. You know, the first aid and and everything else, and the reporting, and and all these things kick into place. And as, as surveillance officers, we stood there scratching our heads. You know, somewhat confused as to how we've gone from. So how how are, how are you? I mean, so my understanding is that a total of eleven shots were fired. Um, he was shot, I believe, seven times in the head. Um, <clears throat> how how were you feeling when you actually when that actually happened? I mean, what what on earth was going through your mind when you when that happened? Were you? I can't even imagine it. Um, 
it's very difficult because obviously I, I'm so mindful of the family and, and having to listen. But, you know, as I understand it, I'm, I'm sure they know the details and would want to know the details. But, um, you know, there, there was uh, body debris um, spread throughout the carriage, mm. uh, some of which was on my colleague, uh, some of which was on me. Um, and, and the scene was pretty rough. Uh, as you can imagine, yeah. um, my my adrenaline levels were through the roof. Um, you know, the whole putting my cap on and drawing my firearm is like uh, mm. my yeah. colleague. Always, we always have a laugh about it because that's not our role. But it must have just been muscle memory that made me do that. No reason for doing it. Um, so it just says to me really about my. Uh, automatic reactions kicked in and um, uh, I was really confused um, and uh, upset by what I'd seen initially um, and and just just really questioning what you know what the hell has just happened yeah yeah yeah. Um, yeah and were there still members of the public on the on the on the carriage carriage at that no and, and I think that was one of the the things I, I was quite pleased about is that, um, you know, I, I think at the time of the actual shots being fired, there was one or two people left on that train. And unfortunately, they, they probably witnessed it themselves, um, not as close quarter because they would have been on their way out. But the sound yeah. uh, in the carriage of the gunfire. Well, it must have been yeah. deaf, deafening, I'd imagine. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think we, we all lost our hearing for an amount of time afterwards. Um, uh, but as far as I'm aware, there were no members of the public left at that point. They'd all been ushered away from the scene mm. um, prior to, to pretty much everything else happening. Uh, and, and to be fair, myself and my colleague uh, and other surveillance officers left pretty quickly because um, there's no place for us to be there, really. You know, our, our role is a covert one. Um, clearly, you know, things, the wheels would now step in and, you know, investigation would continue and and um, even by the time we got upstairs to the ticket office there were members of the press outside of the underground station uh, so we very quickly um, extracted ourselves from the scene yeah. uh, and and to be honest I was I was glad to do so yeah I'm sure I'm sure listen I'm I'm conscious that we've been going for two and a quarter hours now and um I deliberately didn't want to interrupt the the flow of of your of your narrative, but what's become increasingly obvious to me, Adrian, is that this is a two parter. I think because I think what we need to talk about now, next, not now, because I think I think I've probably put you through enough, haven't I? <laughs> Bless you. Um, is I think we need to talk about the the aftermath in the immediate sort of hours, days, weeks, months, and years after I think um, aside from the the tragedy of it all, uh, the post-incident is the bit that means the most to me. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd I'd very much like that Are you okay okay with that? that? Yeah, yeah. I I think, I mean, this is what, you know, um, you know, when we talk about it, or we have talked about it in the past, you know, it's almost like a half-day event uh, yeah, because yeah. there's so much information. Because yeah. you have to put it into context. It's 
X doesn't make sense unless you've spoken about Y and Z. And yeah, you know, yeah. it's yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. To and do... I think it's uh, it's a fascinating. I mean, it's a it's grueling. I mean, I'm sitting here, even though I'm a police officer of 30 years experience, and I've dealt with some fucking terrible stuff in that time. This is possibly one of the most disturbing accounts I've ever listened to um, it, it in that time. Horrendous, so. and I. You know, you can't help but feel for the victim in this and uh, and his family. And it's such a terrible thing to have to go over. But, you know, as a duty, I've, I've always felt as a duty to, to him and to colleagues to try and prevent it happening again, it needs to be spoken about. And it has to be quite frank and uncomfortable yeah. um, because nobody wants to be in this situation again. Um, and, and fortunately, they, they haven't been. Uh, so yeah. there's the proof in the pudding. But. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. as uncomfortable as it is, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it is what it is. And it's, yeah. uh, when you, when you try and keep it factual yeah, and it's uncomfortable, yeah. um, it does sound yeah. quite Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, there's, there's no easy way of describing what you've just described. Is there, I mean, my God, it's, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, that the day that happened, um, I was, I was up in, I, by that time I had transferred up to the West Midlands. And I heard the news coming through um, and I rang um, one of the, my ex-colleagues who was actually at Stockwell in the vicinity and he answered the phone and, and I was like, I can't remember, I'm not going to say who it was, but I said, what the fuck is going on? Are you involved in this? And and he's and all I could hear was sirens in the background. And he goes, uh, and my nickname is Snoop, as everybody, everybody calls me Snoop. He goes, Snoop, can't talk. And I just put the phone down. And I was like, oh shit. You know. Yeah. So, I was getting calls pretty much straight after because you know, people had heard it on the news and one of my best friends phoned me and, and I said, mate, I, I can't talk. And uh, you, you know, yeah, he knew from that that I was involved and you know, you, you know that your life's going to change from that moment out. Bearing, you know, bearing in mind, we will come on to the discovery about him not being the yeah, right yeah. person and all those kind of yeah, things. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what I think, what I think we need to do, Adrian, if you're okay with this, is we'll um, regroup um, and do a part two. Um, I, I think. This has been fascinating, really, really fascinating. I know it was like 17 years ago, but my God, um, it feels like yesterday in many ways. And I'm sure there isn't a day goes by that you, you still don't think about it, I'm sure. But, um, um, but uh, you know, are you, you okay with that proposal? Because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to kind of, you know, I'm just massively mindful of the family, John Charles's family, um, and his loved ones, and all of that. And I don't want anyone to misconstrue this as being, in any way, kind of um, glorifying what happened. Or, you know, I think this is—I like to think of this as oral history, really. And, and I think to, re to make a record of this for people to listen to, and they can listen to this maybe in 50 or 100 years' time. And, and, and I think even if you listen to it in 50 years' time, it'll still resonate. So, so if you're okay yeah. to do part two, then I'd very much like to do that.
No, I, I completely agree with everything you've said there. It's um, it's not about being very glorious. This is not about trying to rewrite history or glorify what's taken place. There's no bravado. It's uh, an honest, self-reflective uh, account of what took place, in my opinion. Um, and I think it's right and proper to do that for, for his sake, uh, as well as you know others that have suffered as a result of it. Brilliant. Okay. Listen, I'm sure you could do with, um, I know I could, I'm, I'm trying not to drink between Mondays and Thursdays at the moment, but <laughs> freaking hell, there's no way, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to break that tonight, flipping heck, uh, I feel as if I need a drink, I don't know if you if you, if you like a drink or not. Uh, but, well, I had two uh, bottles of wine before we started. So, um... <laughs> okay, well listen, this has been great. Um, Cheers. Let's do part two, uh, I'll stop. I'll stop this now and I'll just have a little chat with you in a minute. All right. Okay, mate. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. So that was a fairly exhausting experience um, listening to that. One of the reasons why I wrote this book and one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast is to try and explain to people, to members of the public, to opinion formers, to journalists and to policy makers what an unbelievably difficult job the police frequently have to do. And whilst this might feel like an exceptional incident, and in some ways it is a, obviously an exceptional incident, thank God, but in many ways these types of chaotic incidents take place hundreds, thousands of times every single day all over the UK where police officers have to make snap judgments and take action in frequently chaotic circumstances where they only have a very partial understanding of exactly what's going on. And then their actions afterwards are subjected to the scrutiny of every man and his dog, lawyers and complaints investigators for many months and frequently many, many years afterwards. And I don't think anybody could listen to that account by Adrian. And not unless you're made of stone or you're a complete arsehole, one or the other, and come away not hearing and feeling the distress in his voice as he recalls that incident. And what a catastrophe that incident was, not just for Jean-Charles de Menezes and his family and the people who loved him, but for the people who were actually involved in that incident at that time. So, I'm really 
mindful of not wanting to sit in judgment over anyone on all of this. It was 17 years ago. As I said in the interview with Adrian, so much has changed in that time. The tactics, the communications, the way things are done, the command structures, the recording of decisions, the way that information and intelligence and particularly imagery is used to brief officers. All of that has changed beyond recognition because of this incident. And I was very much involved in, you know, for quite a few years, the training of the senior officers who were the ultimate decision makers as to whether lethal force should be used against someone in that type of scenario. But just looking at, you know, just to kind of peel back what went wrong there. And, you know, I say this as someone who has not read every single word of Stockwell 1 and Stockwell 2 uh, reports of the coroner's inquest and all of this. There are hundreds, thousands of pages that have been written about this incident. Um, and I don't profess to have read all of it, or even a large amount of it. I'm basing these comments purely on what Adrian has just told me. So going right back to the start of that job, the initial ID, the initial identification of Jean Charles when he came out of that block of flats was not made. An identification, a positive identification was not made and it was not made at any stage during the period of time that he was being followed. And the reason it wasn't was because of the poor quality of the images, the image that was used to brief the surveillance team. And I'm, I, I don't know, but I'm, I would have to assume that that would be the same image that would be used to brief anybody else, including firearms officers, I assume. And as an ex-surveillance photographer myself, I know how important getting a really good quality head and shoulders and full length image of a subject uh, is so that that can be shown to members of the surveillance team. Ideally, an album, certainly what I would have done, would I would have been producing an album of, of images, some head and shoulders, some left profile, some right profile, and full length front and back, as many images as possible so that you can show that to surveillance officers and you can say that is the person that you need to be following. So I just find it just so kind of inexplicable really that all of that action took place using an image that by all accounts was of very, very poor quality possibly a photocopy of a photocopy of what was originally a crap picture, maybe taken from a CCTV camera or something like that. So that was the first thing that really kind of leapt out at me. Um, so yeah, so you start with a crap image, then the briefing that you give to the surveillance team or anybody else for that matter is substandard. And then the thing that really jumped out at me, I suppose, was the absence of a clear plan, the absence of clear directions 
to those surveillance officers as to what they needed to do should someone come out of that address, either matching the uh, subject, so somebody by some miracle based on the crap picture could say, that is definitely our man. But there was no plan to deal with, it appears on the, on the basis of the account given by Adrian, there was no plan to deal with a positive identification but equally, there was no real plan to deal with a negative identification other than to follow that person. And it seems um, rather inexplicable that that person was allowed to get onto a bus, not once, but twice. But yet, um, you know, the direction was given not to let him get on the tube. So that just seemed to me to be, um, yeah, just messy, really, really, really messy. Um, and then the next thing for me was the confusion, the lack of communication between the surveillance officers on the ground and the firearms officers who had been deployed and they didn't even, the surveillance officers didn't even know that they'd been deployed. So, what briefing had the firearms officers been given? Don't know. You know, putting myself in the position of a surveillance officer on that day, you know, I'd like to know what briefing have they been given? What images have they seen? Have they seen images that are different to the images that I've seen? Don't know. Um, and then it all gets unbelievably confusing. And then it, it seems that as soon as he's approaching Stockwell Tube Station, then there's a massive panic and a decision which is a very ambiguous decision is 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 given to those at the scene to to say you know something along the lines of don't don't allow him to get on the tube and i completely get the fact that given that you know the the bombers, the failed bombers the day before had started their lethal journey, which ultimately failed, but they'd started their lethal journey at Stockwell Tube. You know, I can see how, how that would get everyone absolutely flapping. But the reality is he'd already been on two buses and nothing had happened. So... And I'm not saying that as a criticism because God, God knows, you know, this has been poured over by people infinitely better, uh, you know, informed and infinitely more knowledgeable than me. So, you know, I'm not sitting in judgment here. I just, I'm just struggling to understand how it was that someone was not allowed to get on the tube but they were perfectly happy to let that person get onto a crowded bus. And I feel desperately sorry for Adrian and his colleagues who, you know, were left in this kind of hopeless floundering in this hopeless situation. So then um, the other final thing that kind of really jumped out at me there was this potential confusion between... Uh, possibly identical with 
P-I-W, and positively identical or identified with. So as a surveillance officer or someone who's a surveillance, a uh, experienced surveillance logist, P-I-W in my world has always meant possibly identical with. And there'll always be P-I-W until a positive identification is made. But it would seems from what Adrian says that somehow someone has said that Jean Charles is has been positively identified, and goodness knows how that happened. But um, I do think that uh, it's going to be fascinating to listen to, you know, the aftermath of that incident. Uh, how it played out for Adrian and his colleagues um, on a personal and a professional level. Um, and I certainly know from the conversations I've had with him and with others, you know, offline, that they are all still horribly mentally scarred and traumatised by that incident and feel a deep, deep sense of... Well, I don't think there is a word, is there, really? Deeply sad at the outcome of that. Right. I'll, um, I'll see you again next week, uh, hopefully with part two.